3: If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio
2: with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and
3: let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-889.
5: Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for my Patriot food. if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're here listening to us on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put it dash in the middle, Southern sensecom dot com. Wanna welcome everyone. Uh here your I'm your hostess with the most just the radio chick Annie, along with my co host, who's far better at this than I have been lately. Curtis.
4: <laughs>
5: Good afternoon,
6: Curtis. Hey,
5: Boy, it's just <laughs> discombobulated. Oh man. I could mess up a wet dream. Anyway. Hey. Well, oh man!
7: I can we say at least, so um, I'm, I'm got, at, at least I'm through with all the what? eating of turkey.
4: <laughs>
7: we finally got rid of all the turkey. So oh,
4: I'm
5: we're, we're almost that. done with all of it. We're almost done with all oh, of it, and okay. this was one of the quietest Thanksgivings we've ever had. It was just my husband and I, just the two of us, and I cooked up a ton of food, and um, wow. with all the tributes. Uh, and the turkey is almost completely gone. And we have not been eating it every day. Uh, amazingly. You know, uh, one day I had a steak and tonight we're going to have uh, some uh, suede uh, fish. Um, so we're not eating it every day. We didn't get a huge, you know, humongous turkey. So between the two of us, we're doing a pretty good job. And neither one of us really are big eaters. I'm lucky if I eat one meal a day, uh, which is surprising, but... Um, i got to tell everyone, if, if I sound like I've been a little confused, um, I've been under some stress. You know, I've got my older brother, I mentioned, that has been in the hospital now going on for, uh, oh, geez, a month and a half. Um, he's in rehab at this point, but he's not doing well. So please send out prayers for my brother. Um, some of it is mental issues. Some of it is physical issue. Um I got off the phone with his psychiatrist uh today just before the show so that's why I'm a little I'm not exactly <laughs> up to snuff.
7: Oh there. Uh,
5: huh? <laughs> oh thanks. I'm crazy too. Oh thanks Curtis. I need to say.
4: Hey,
5: we, we uh, a <laughs> Yeah, you know, everyone has their issues with family members, especially around the holiday times. It's become so stressful, and we have not bought a single gift. We have not gone and picked out our tree yet. Uh, So hopefully this weekend we can start to get our lives a little bit back into order here. Uh, Matter of fact, tomorrow, my husband and I are going for our uh, church photos. Our church puts together an album of all the uh, members. So, you know, you you see the person's name, you see them in church. It makes it a little bit more intimate when you do go, uh, when you go to uh, some of their other uh, events, such as concerts or prayer breakfasts or something like that. And you see the person and you've seen their face in this photo album. You feel a little more connected. And it's a really nice thing that they do. So, you know, if anyone out there does attend a service, Maybe you may speak to your pastor, your rabbi, or whatever, and maybe put something together so that, you know, fellow members can be a little bit more connected. And in doing so, we connect ourselves to God by doing that, I think, Curtis. I think it's a marvelous and wonderful thing. What's your, what's your
7: thought? Hey, I'm all in agreement. And uh, I, I would also like to add that tomorrow uh, tomorrow's another special day, Pearl Harbor Day. Oh, yes. There's a oh, yes. lot of events going hmm So we want to uh, remember and honor those who, who sacrificed their lives for their country back then what, during a the sneak what, attack.
5: What people don't realize that remains are still being identified 70 years later. It's been 78 years. And our military and the forensic team that works with them is still identifying the men that went down on those ships that were killed on Pearl Harbor Day 78 years ago tomorrow. And the remains are still being returned to families. And sometimes it's nieces and nephews that receive the remains of these soldiers and sailors that were killed in Pearl Harbor to seven December 7th, 1941, 78 years mm-hmm. ago. And Chief just posted in the chat room that his father was at Pearl Harbor that morning. Um,
4: and,
5: and you know, I, I got I to gotta say this because uh, my husband and I went to Wally World, or what we call Walmart, we call it Wally World, yesterday. And when we parked, as, as we were leaving, there was a Lincoln Continental Park directly in front of us. And uh, I looked at the vanity plate that was in front, and I, I honestly cannot call this a vanity plate. I wish the person that was driving that vehicle had been in it at the time I saw it. I would have gotten out, given that person the biggest hug and kiss. On the plate was a Marine Corps plate, and it said, veteran. World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Now, on the Korea mm-hmm. one, it said the Chosan Few. Now, if anyone knows about the Battle of Chosan Be- Valley, they know about the attack that the Chinese did on the American troops, the overrun of the troops, the, the massacre that occurred in the Choson Valley. This man was a survivor of not only just World War II, the Korean War, the Chosun Valley of the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. I wish I saw that man. I would have given him the biggest hug and kiss ever. I mean, the heroes that we have among us, and then we look at the embarrassment of this impeachment proceeding, the cowardice that we see in the this impeachment hearing, and then we see a man like this that gave everything for his country, and the men that died in Pearl Harbor tomorrow, and we're going to have our friends, a matter of fact, all three guests we have today are veterans, so we're going to have four veterans on the show, Curtis, you, Colin Heaton, Dan Perkins, why did I say four, three, Jeez, I'm losing my mind. But we got veterans. Perkins, Heaton. Colin Heaton and Dan Perkins are both veterans. And, you know, it's going to be a tremendous show. And we're not doing the dedication at the front of the show like we normally do. uh, Because Colin Heaton wants to talk about something that happened 34 years ago this month. The downing of Arrow Air Flight 1285 which crashed in Gander, Newfoundland. It was carrying 248 members of the Screaming Eagle soldiers and eight members of the crew. In total, 256 men and women died in what the Canadian government has covered up and what our government has covered up, which appears to be an attack by Islamic jihadists. And the day that yep. plane went down, the Islamic jihadists claimed credit <SSSS> for downing credit. that plane. And it has never, ever, ever been fully investigated. And these men and women gave their lives for what is the biggest cover up in American history. And we're going to be talking about that. So and, we've got a lot to do, a lot to talk about. Yeah, go ahead, Curtis. I'm going to start crying in yeah, this second. Go ahead. Me.
7: The plane Save that me. went down in Lockerbie, was that a civilian plane that got shot down or blew up in Lockerbie, England? That Something Pan, like Am that.
5: Flight, Pan Am Flight 103. And it was also carrying some military investigators.
6: Ironically,
5: I they were coming back with evidence of more Islamic jihadists. and had carried a school group from upstate New York. Uh, which is mm. why I'm very We did a dedication to the military members that were on that flight of uh, Pan Am Flight oh, 103. Fuck. I believe it was oh, earlier this year or maybe it was late last year, but it was recently. Um, yeah, and I'm going to be asking Colin about that because what happened was both flights, Pan Am Flight 103 and Arrow Air Flight 1285, had civilians loading baggage on there baggage that mm-hmm. was not on the manifest There's strange mm-hmm. similarities between those two flights now arrow flight 1285 went down in um uh, oh good lord uh, 1985 and pan am mm-hmm. flight 103 went down in 1989 just prior to 911 years prior to 9-11 so you know we have been under islamic assault not just 9-11 but long before that long before that and these are all things we're going to be talking to colin about and uh for people who don't know my friend colin he good lord i've known him (laughs) i think 10 years or more um I met him at one of the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition conventions. He's been a frequent guest, and I think he's one of the few people uh, Curtis that wrote more books than you did. <laughs> so
4: okay. He may have All one right. Up on you.
5: But he was wow. he was a member of this army unit that went on board these flights, and he was one of the ones that flew up to Gander, Newfoundland, bought, helped bring up the bodies back. And then from Dover accompanied these men and women to their home to be laid to rest. Yeah, to be laid to rest. Um, So he's got a real intimate connection with this. He went from the army to becoming a marine sniper. And um, he was, uh, he knew the individuals that went down with Black Hawk Down in Somalia. And that was Oh, man. 90 91. Yeah. So, it was, like uh, I said something it's, like going that. To be, it's going to be a really really interesting show uh with him and Dan Perkins talking uh about that. But, you know, um
7: Well, before we I got get- another question for you. You were law enforcement in New York. Were you law enforcement when um Flight 800 went down? And- that's very controversial whether it was shot down or exploded over, um, long, long Island,
5: long Island sand. Um, that was, I got to think now because I was living in Northport, and I think I had retired at that time because I retired in 90. And I think that was in 97 or 98. It was before we moved here to South Carolina. And, um, I knew some of the people that responded to that. Um, There was something else that went on around the same time. It was shortly after the Lockerbie bombing, which was Lockerbie, I said, was 89.
4: Uh
5: Now you've got me thinking. Now you've got me thinking. I I could could be confusing my dates. Maybe if someone in the chat room um, can lend me a hand here on what the date was on the TWA flight 800 that went down. uh, Because... I was following that closely, and there was talk about a flash being seen before the, pla- the, the plane came. So there's also questions about yeah. whether or not a rock had been fired at it. Now, that went down over the south shore of Long Island, so that was not the Long Island Sound. That was off of um, – not too far off of Jones Beach, between Brighton Beach and Jones Beach, which is a wide stretch because Brighton Beach is in Queens, Jones Beach is in Suffolk County, so you got – two counties in between. Um, you got me thinking, because I do remember following that closely on the news, but I know I wasn't working, and I retired in 96. So you really got my mind spinning. I'm getting old here, <laughs>
4: guys. Yeah. i got the gray hair to move it.
7: <laughs> well, I got, a, oh, I got an update for you. Okay. It's in the chat room. Let's see. World Airline Flight 800 was well, a Boeing 747-100 that exploded and crashed into the and Ocean near East.
5: Yeah, East Merlitches. East Merlitches. Okay. New yeah. York. We used to go fish East Merlitches, and my grandparents had lived out in the op Never heard of that. It place. was July of 96. All right. So I wasn't fully retired. I retired officially September 1st of 1996. I was on terminal leave. I was on leave uh,
7: um, when that happened.
5: I had, yeah, I had something like uh, sixty-five days or something like that days of terminal leave prior to my officially being retired. And Vorp is right. You know, we, we we most of us at the time believe it was a Stinger missile that may have hit the plane because they saw an explosion from the outside of the plane, not from the inside out, from the outside in. And again. Not fully investigated, an investigation we believe to been a massive cover-up.
7: Government covered some, it up, you're right.
5: So much that, you know, um, we take for granted, and so much that we find that is actually cover-up. And uh this, again, we're going to be talking with Colin about and uh, seeing what his take is on all of this. Yeah. Well, thank you um, for putting that in there. Yeah. That. Anyway, yeah, and uh, now it's. It, it, I also want to mention, you know, something that just happened over the last couple of days. Something happened this afternoon, just before going on oh, yeah. the uh, here, and a couple of days ago, on two different naval bases, we've had shootings. Now, one was with the service weapon, the one in Pearl Harbor. This was a naval. Uh, a member of the navy with his Active service duty. weapon. Yeah. So you know, uh, my question was being was he like you know some sort of security that he would have a weapon on his person, or was he in training, which is why he would have a weapon on his person? Because Curtis, you know as, as well as I do, you know, as married to a marine, that you're not allowed to carry any weapon, any firearm. I shouldn't say weapon because a knife is a weapon. Any firearm. Onto a military base. It's forbidden. The only weapons that are on the base are those that are issued. Now, we have weapon being used in the shooting in Pensacola, and the details are still coming out on that one. Uh, In both cases, the shooters were killed either by their own hand or by someone else. But you know the only individuals were those that are training officers, those that are in training or those that are in security. They're the only ones that would carry a firearm. A foreign national would not be authorized to carry a firearm on a military base. Now, in Pensacola, this was the Saudi Arabian national being trained to become a pilot. Hello, does the term Islamic jihadist come to mind here?
7: I mean, it's at a point where you really can't trust anybody from that part of the world. You know, we have these um, killings over in Afghanistan and for a while in our, um, Iraq, where, you know, the people we're supposed to be helping turn on our guys, shoot them in the back of the head. So, and, and our government do not want to um, offend them by saying no weapons. So they allow this to happen. I don't get
5: it. Now, they restrict our Second Amendment rights, and yet somehow or other a Saudi Arabian national on a military base, a U.S. installation within the United States, somehow gets access to a firearm and commits jihad. Does any of this make sense to anyone out there?
7: Well, you know, we our people, our security personnel, were are probably not even allowed to um, search those guys since they get special status.
5: Yeah, what's I really scary is at, at the Marine Corps Air Station, they are training foreign nationals to fly these F-35s. So we have foreign nationals right here in my little town of Beaufort, South Carolina, at the Marine Corps Air Station being trained. Will the next jihadi attack be here? It's in our backyards, people. And we're allowing our government to ignore the danger that the American people are being placed under by jihadists.
7: Right. Look at Fort Hood. I don't and know that what was by Americans.
5: Major Nadal Hassan. And he oh, was yeah. an American citizen. A Muslim American citizen.
7: That didn't mean a thing to them.
5: No. They're they're God and religion
7: come first.
5: It's not terrorism. When Major Nadal Assad was openly, openly, you know, talking about jihad and it was not taken care of. Well, you
7: know, that was job-related. That was a (laughs) job-related incident.
5: (laughs) Well, i do believe we may have our guest here in on the line let me bring this individual in with code 517 is this our guest uh, dr linda lee tarver yes it is okay. well good afternoon you know what i feel so embarrassed i was reading your biography and i'm going this woman is so active so vivacious I feel like a little tiny pip squeak. <laughs> oh no. No, no, no. I think she's a little busy or crazy, one of the two, but hey. I love my country and my president.
4: <laughs>
5: oh man. You are an amazing an amazing woman. And you know what? Now you've got me intimidated because you're also a psychologist and you're going to when you get off the air you're going to go, "This girl is crazy."
4: <laughs> I'm going to join you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> some people have called me that but
5: um uh, i've, I've god has been good to me that that's all i know oh that that i said i that i say all the time you know i bless god every every single day you know and every i day. mentioned you know I, I, my family's going through a little bit of a hard time here because i've got a family member that's hospitalized he's in rehab right now and He's got oh, mental no. issues as well as physical. And I, 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 I think to myself, you know, I can bemoan what we're going through, and I'm dealing with this on long distance because he's 895 miles away and there's not a lot I oh. can do. But I think yes. about the people that deal with things that are far worse than mine, and yes. I say, you know what, why am I complaining? Get over it. I tell get you. over yourself. Yes. Thank God and just, just deal with it. Yeah, you don't need a
0: degree in anything to be grateful to the Lord for what He's brought you through, and and to uh, pray. I mean, you can send prayers 890 miles away.
5: Yeah, it reminds me of a story that I heard a long time ago, and this man was complaining, and he was kneeling in prayer, complaining every which way about the pressures he's under and the burdens he bears. And he was sent a vision, and he, here he is. He's now up in heaven, and Jesus takes him by the hand and says, Listen, you, I've heard your prayers about the burdens you're under, and I see that you're carrying a heavy cross. So what I want you to do is lay that down. I'm going to take you into a room, and it'll be burdens of other people, and I'll allow you to trade your cross.
0: Mm. a lesser
5: burden of someone else's. Come on. And he takes this stand into the room, and he sees all these ones that are tremendous. Some of them are several stories high. But in the far corner, he sees this tiny little cross, and he picks it yes. up, and he says, can I, this be my burden? And Christ says to him, turn it over and sees wh- whose name it is, whose burden you're picking up. He turns it over. He sees his own name. Ooh. Every time I think I want to complain, I think That's of this That's a powerful story. story. That's a powerful story. Very powerful. Yeah. Well, talking about burdens, let's switch to
4: something. <laughs> <Talk> about D.C. <laughs>
5: burdens, right?
4: <laughs> In hearing.
5: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This this mockery that we have of impeachment hearings going on, and, and every time I look at our president, he seems to be getting younger. It's like he takes this on and he goes, bring it on. Whatever you want to throw at me, bring it on because I'm not going to let it lick me. Well, I will
0: tell you that I met with the vice president, Mike Pence, who was here in Holland, Michigan. So he came to Kalamazoo and went to Holland, Michigan just recently. And I can assure you that the prayers that have been going up for the president and the vice president and their families is important and has sustained him. The president understands the power of the people and he is being supported by the people who elected him 63 million people who elected him, and even more than that, who have then since learned that he is a man of his word, he is a person who made promises and kept them, and now he's turning tide even more people than the 63 million that voted for him. Much more than that is coming around to see that this man, even through all that he has gone through, is still fulfilling the promises that he made to the people. He said, I'm not a politician. I'm a businessman, and his integrity is on the line here to, to make the promise and keep them, and he's done just that. And he's done as much as he can with the cooperation or the lack thereof. We need USMCA passed, and the Democrats have ignored it. That is going to help our country, but they're not concerned about that. They want this man
5: done and out, and it is not going to happen. It's a a rabid hatred, and we're listening to, like, Nancy Pelosi and others saying, well, we sent uh, 200 and some odd or almost 300 bills over to Mitch McConnell sitting on his desk, and when they started to rattle off some of these bills, such as gun control, Right. And supporting Planned Parenthood. Well, of course, those right. bills are going to sit on his desk because these are liberal policies we don't want.
0: That we've tried and they failed our country. We tried
5: them and they failed us.
0: Absolutely,
5: absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and we watch now Jerry Nadler go into this judicial committee for the impeachment, and it is so <laughs> mind-boggling that Nadler actually gets caught on camera dozing off during the hearings. You know, I'm kind of like, you know,
0: between he and Joe Biden and Adam Schiff, I think that that clown circus is something to (laughs) behold. But they do not need to have any positions of power. Our president, and one of the things that I, I do know, that as I am talking to black folks Out here, they are looking at this impeachment lynching of attempted lynching of our president, the diminishing of the due process, the diminishing of the third branch of government. Bill Clinton was found lying in front of a federal grand jury. That is what was turned over to the House uh, the fact that he had perjured himself, he was disbarred from Arkansas, and it was the third branch of government that made uh, the finding of a crime. There is no crime committed. They don't want to inquire or put it in a position of having a third branch of government dictate the the schism between the executive and the legislative branch. There is nothing here. There's nothing there, and they know it. And when she says it's clear that he has done this, it's clear, it's only clear to you because you you cannot see with any other vision other than your hatred for this president. He has done much more than any of his predecessors, any president before him in terms of the African-American unemployment rate, in terms of the higher income for the gap between um, African Americans and white Americans. The um, infant mortality rate is better. People are not even talking about that. Um, In terms of Planned Parenthood defunding that, that is like the number one killer of black babies in America. There's more babies aborted in New York than born. In terms of our um, First Step Act, 90% of those thousands of individuals released from federal penitentiary our African Americans, and the list goes on. He is uplifting every sector of our community: the farmers, those who are the military, those who are serving, um, who served our country as veterans, law enforcement. He's got a commission for law enforcement. Every era, area of our nation, he is working on. And the first and far- foremost primary role of government is the protection of its people. That is why we have government. And, and he is protecting us at our, at our borders. He is making sure that he's negotiating uh, deals to make sure that we are a safe country. And he's doing strategic alignments with people who will work with him. And he is moving on at the interest of American people. And I love that about this president.
5: You know, there's so much to be saying good about him, but instead, you know, they always look for something bad. You know, with the impeachment, they tried him and failed with um, the colluding with Russia, and there's nothing there. The quid pro quo, there's nothing there. Now, I don't know if you caught, you know, the Pelosi last night saying, we're going to get him on obstructing justice, and someone asked him, What do you mean by obstructing justice? And she responded, and I fell out of my Arcee Bunker chair laughing at the way (laughs) she responded. She said, he's going through the courts to prevent us from going forward. So in other words, he's taking proper legal action that any citizen can do that is available to us under the Constitution to follow through on the courts to do whatever we need to prevent unlawful action against us. So he's doing everything right, but that is considered (laughs) obstruction of justice. And I swear, my husband almost fell off his couch. (laughs)
4: Yeah, it,
0: it doesn't have to make sense to us. It just needs to make sense to the number of votes, she believes she can have they may they ran in 2018 in the midterms on impeaching this president and we had a congresswoman from uh, Rashida in Detroit impeach the M.F.R. that's what she came out about and she was geared and cheered in front of her young child and that seemed to be very cute but the reality is is that they ran on that and they're planning on doing what they promised They're going to make that promise, they're going to impeach him, and then they're going to consider that some votes. But it's already the tide is turning. People don't have a stomach for things that are not just. You know, African-Americans in particular want social justice and social order. We want them both. But justice has got to be just, and a reasonable person would not think that you should be able to remove anyone from their elected position without Allowing them to face their accuser Because what happened to the
4: whistleblower To
0: face their accuser To bring forth their defense And he is innocent until proven guilty You know and that is where the uh, Democrats have led us in, In this fiasco And clown show Is that he is guilty until he Exonerates himself And that is not the justice system That is not just and equitable And even a person on the street every person on the street understands that and it is becoming very clear that there's a difference between liberal snowflake ideology and the um the justice due process and social order social justice and ensuring that we have the rule of law and that's where i stand and that's where our president stands and and our republican party stands and i stand with us on, on that, and that's what <laughs> I'm going to be sharing. It is out of order. You know, There's so many um, black men in the South that were lynched based on hearsay, lynched based on hearsay. And so it's it's personal. I had an uncle in Alabama that was lynched. My father's brother was lynched by the Democrat Ku Klux Klan in Alabama, and I don't know the details about it, but I have read about the fact that hearsay, mere hearsay was enough to lynch a black man. And and I we're not going to have that. This is out of order. And I'm rising up along with other voices to say this is wrong and we need to support our president and reject what Pelosi and Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler are bringing forth.
5: You know, you bring an important point up is that the liberal left has been trying to change history. And mm-hmm. I was listening to some of these politicians last night and i'm glad i wasn't eating because i would have probably tossed my cookies Listening to them <laughs> yeah. it's like you know republicans don't stand for equal justice republicans are not for civil rights and i'm thinking you know you blooming idiot but no it's not he's rewriting history because the more they say it and if people don't do their due diligence and do their homework would not realize that they are lying to your face, blatant lies that they put out there as truth. And we see it time and time again with these politicians. Now, some of them on the right do the same thing, but we see it more on the left, and, and people actually buy it. If it's not in a small little 30-second soundbite or a 120-character posting, people are not going to pay attention and see that they're being told blatant lies
0: correct but it requires us to challenge the institutions where our children get their information from as well and making sure that the truth we used to teach black history in my church back in the day it was important for us to know our history as well the hbcus the historic black colleges and universities that are being fully supported and funded by our president Donald J. Trump. Many of those were founded by Republicans. Republicans, mm-hmm. Spellman College was the was founded by a Republican woman. The Rockefeller's wife was Spellman. That is why it's named Spellman, Howard University, a white Republican founded that. I mean, there are so many different things that people are not sharing, organizations, that people are joining, that they have no idea what the history is about. And yet they go through telling their lies, revising the history when the facts are, are very plain and simple. The NAACP was founded by a white woman and a white man. And they held their mm-hmm. first convention on Lincoln's birthday because he they called him the great emancipator, Republican. Abraham Lincoln. And so there's some, there's some truth-telling that needs to be told and also some history that needs to be shared. But in terms of the civil rights, the Jews and the Republicans worked in harmony with the African-Americans and black folks for civil rights, and they still stand with um, – we still stand with ourselves, the Republicans stand with us for civil rights. And that's important to note. It's not just emancipation from slavery, but there's still some slavery going on, especially in the inner cities where we need to have some emancipation going on from these liberal oppressive parties. I mean, that's what's going on today, even in Chicago. You want gun rights and gun violence and all of this, but you don't bring any type of solutions to Chicago to disarm the gang members and those who should not have them. And so it was a Trump-free zone after Rahm Emanuel was over Chicago. And then right now, Lightfoot, she's not doing anything with our president to to reduce the crime in Chicago. And they don't care. They do not care. They do not care that 51% of the abortions in the United States are black babies being aborted. They don't care. It's a genocide. And at one point in his life, uh, Jesse Jackson believed that it was a genocide. He's quoted saying that abortion is genocide. And we know that eugenics were the Democratic Party. And so, again, we need to do some truth-telling. And I'm just one voice out here trying to share the truth and making sure that people are aware of our party, of our principles, of our president that we love so much and that he's doing the right things, that we're praying for him. We're also promoting
5: what he's doing for all of us. Yeah. Now you know, I I had an interesting guest, uh as Curtis, you might remember who this was, that you know, when they talk to people about Republican Party, especially in the black community, they get a better response when they say, We are Frederick Frederick Douglass Republicans. And for some oh, yeah. reason oh, the Carl. black community is able to accept that oh, that was Kay Carl? Yeah. All right. Um, yeah Kate our, Collins, our buddy cake yes. Paul. but um it, for some reason, Republican has become a dirty word. they made it well I bad, wear it like a badge equivalent to fashion <laughs> <laughs> I well, I do. wear republican
0: <laughs> like a badge. I'm just telling you, um, the Republican party was um conceived in Wisconsin and it was born in Jackson, Michigan. I live in Michigan and the Republican Party was founded um, in terms of the, 1854. The
6: 1854,
0: July 6, and it was under the oaks. And they had many different things, but the three tenets of the platform at the time was, you know, here under the oaks was uh, founded the Republican Party, um, destined in the throes of civil strife to one abolish slavery, two vindicate democracy, and three perpetuate the union. And that was the three tenets of our party platform when it started. But abolishing slavery was the important um, unifier of the republic, the party who was a Republican party. Because we live in a constitutional republic, and people think that we live in a democracy. We don't.
5: We oh, live in a Christ constitutional
0: republic. And so <laughs> yes. the Republican I- Party was birthed out of the constitutional republic that we live in and those three Mm -hmm. things still today require us to be mindful that there is still slavery going on and that the republican party still has to fight against slavery enslavement and our platforms are could not be any more um, different in terms of our party platforms if you go on the um, rnc platform gop.com or you go to dnc.com and you look at the party platforms from 2016, you can read through those and see the differences between our party's platform. And I, I am a Republican I Died in the Wool Republican, and I won't belong to any other party but the Party of Freedom and Progress. And that is what Frederick Douglass said.
4: Frederick Douglass. I wrote
0: a book called died in, died in the Wool. It was an ode to um, Frederick Douglass. I love the Frederick Douglass Foundation and all of those who are participating in that organization. They are great, great patriots, and I love them. And um, But I'm a Republican, a died in the wool Republican, like Frederick Douglass said. And so um, my book, well, Died-in-the-Wool, is on Amazon and and BarnesandNoble.com, so I'm going to throw that out there.
4: <laughs> yeah,
5: well, we've we got a link to you at your uh, – Republican Women's Federation in Michigan, so people okay. can find out about you over there. So I got that link Thank up. You. I was not aware of the book, so now I'm going to have to have uh, died uh, in the paper. Dr. Linda Lee Tarver,
0: yes, yes,
5: yeah, um, yeah, you've got to Dr. Alita King wrote my it. forward.
0: Yes, I will have to
5: sign. Autograph. It. Also a frequent guest. I will yes. autograph it. Yes. As a matter of fact, Uh, My co-host happens to be also a Frederick Douglass Republican, and I joined onto the Frederick Douglass Republican when I started getting involved with the Tea Parties and doing my research. And I says, Nope, I've got to get involved in this one. You know what people don't realize is that you know the Republican Party was the first one to pass civil rights legislation in 1865. It was the Democratic Party in 1895 that repealed it, and it was the Republican Party in the late 1940s and 50s that rewrote the civil rights uh, uh, legislation and only got passed when they ended up bribing uh, the bigoted senator from Texas then to become president, LBJ, Lyndon Bain Johnson, and they said, well, you get this passed, we'll let you own it. And it was with the help of Dr. Martin Luther King, Sr., when they said, hey, listen, help us pass this. The Democrats went over and said, if you help us pass this, we'll get – you send us voters, we'll pass this. And Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King, Sr. said, well, I'll give you 600,000 black votes if you pass this legislation. And unfortunately, that was the downfall. That was the downfall of our society in the great experiment that followed after it. And it is a shame that this history is not being taught, and that here we are fighting left and right, and it's, we're being fed lies.
0: It, it is, it's a campaign of lies, because what they're offering the black community is you become a monolithic group where you vote for us in droves you make sure that we have the black vote. We don't have to do anything for you. We can pat you on the head and make sure one or two of you get ahead, but we want to keep you ignorant of the fact because illiteracy is important for the Democrats because once you start doing some truth telling and making sure that people know what's going on in our communities and our society and what's happening, um, it, it keeps you enslaved and again, We have to do some emancipation, and education is the first and foremost thing. Um, It was Betsy DeVos in Michigan that was promoting schools of choice, and I live in Michigan. She was a leader. She was our state party chair here in Michigan, Republican Party chair here in Michigan. I absolutely love that woman and what her and her husband have done. They are Millionaires or billionaires, they could be doing anything, living on any island or any continent, but they chose to live in Michigan and fight for educational freedoms, and she's doing that as Secretary of Education. But she fought for schools of choice. I live in the in an inner city. I'm not a, a millionaire or a thousandaire for, for that matter, but I do know that um, I lived in the city of Lansing. I know that my children were not going to get the quality of education that they needed, that I needed, because the school district was failing those who were in it at the time. And school of choice passed. I was able to take my children outside of a failing school district and to a school district that was thriving and miles away. And it worked for me. And I was free of the chains and bonds that I would have to try to sell my home or or move or or what have you. But I was able to stay in my home, send my children to a thriving school that was not going to leave them behind. And my son graduated from Howard University. My daughter graduated from Michigan State University, and they're doing well. And they they received the education um, that they needed. And it's important that not just my child, I'm not just concerned about my children. I'm concerned about parents who are like me, who need to make sure that their children do better. They get better and they deserve better. A quality education, there's no reparations for a missed education is what Rod Page, um, former Secretary of Education under George W. Bush said, he's the crafter of the No Child Left Behind. He came to Michigan and said, there's no reparations for a miseducation. And that stuck with me for, for the longest, and even till this day. It is important that we educate our children and start giving them their history. I'm so proud of Mary Church Terrell. Mary Church Terrell, wonderful woman, pioneer woman, black woman leader, She was a Republican. She was over all the women in the nation as the first African-American woman to hold a position with the RNC. Mary Church Terrell, and beautiful story, read her books, but women who are in the Deltas know her, but they don't know her story as far as being an advocate for her party, and that's important for us to know.
5: You, know, you said something important about education because I, I, my curse will say that. I say this all the time. All politics are local. And here in South Carolina, the county I live in, our school board was so malfunctioning that we were able, by activism, through our Republican Party, change the board. We then forced mm. out the school superintendent who has just been found guilty of other acts Of corruption. We've got a oh. new school superintendent in here. We've got a new school board. But further than that, because we have been pushing school choice issues so hard here in the state and our state GOP, and I love uh, our GOP chair, Drew McKissick. You know, he's a friend of mine. He's such a sweetheart. I could just eat him up. Uh, and <laughs> because of that, in our state house and our state senate, our bills for school choice. Starting off with those that are disadvantaged and uh, underprivileged or in special needs, we're starting with them first. And And also allowing the school funds to go not just to their school of choice, but to even to a private school. So if you live in an area and there's a private school near you that can give you the education you want for your child or the care you need for your child if there's special needs, the dollars follow the Child. I love that. I love that. So, like, that is, like that I said, is cutting edge, local.
0: Yeah. That is cutting edge, and it's that's a life local. changer. Mm-hmm.
5: That is excellent. That not to only go that, we've even gone, oh, let me finish this one thought, Chris, and I'll let you ask the doctor a question. Uh, but we've even gone so far as that the founding documents, we started off on the college and university levels, must be taught. But now in high school And even now going into middle school Founding documents must be taught we will be taught here in the state of South Carolina Go ahead, Curtis I'm sorry, I keep on cutting you off Go ahead <laughs>
7: Hey, it's good to have you here with us today, Dr. Tarver
5: Thank you for having me
7: We all know that the Democrats love to play identity politics So it shouldn't surprise us um, what we heard this weekend. But anyway, I'm going to ask you what your thoughts are with um, Kamala Harris saying that the United mm-hmm. States isn't ready for a, a female, a woman, especially a, an African-American woman as a candidate for president.
0: I think that the candidate pool for Republican Condoleezza Rice would have been nice in 20. 20- Um, 24 I think that would be a a nice addition I think that the America America is ready for any race and any gender of person I think it's just the right person with the right message at the right time and who is on the right because they've gone so far left Um, their policies have gone so far left that they are they're not recognizable and you know we can't identify with someone who wants to place more money on um, on green new deals that people can't even explain what the green gas emissions and, you know, it's too far to the left. And when I, I'm not against um, the LGBT community, I'm not against equal rights for the LGBT. They don't get additional rights. They shouldn't have additional rights. And, and that's where the pandering and catering to uh, a group, that's, they have lost it. And, you know, and particularly with Kamala Harris, she was tough on crime in California, and yet she is tough on uh, the federal government and what our president is doing. And having sanctuary cities and having all of that in California, and California being a very left progressive state, people cannot identify with her. And Mr. Reparations himself, um, Mr. I am you know Spartacus wanting to come out mm, and Cory give Booker. reparations. Cory Booker, yes, <laughs> they, they're so they're not connecting. This is not what Black people are talking about. I want reparations. Well, how do you define reparations? Who gets money? Who, if you're biracial, do you get half the fee? I mean, I'm just trying to understand what kind of foolishness that is. And when there are bigger issues going on in our community black women are number 1 in becoming and being uh, killed in domestic violence black women are the number one contractors of hiv in america black women are 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 the have other statistics in terms of not getting loans and different things we need to level the playing field there those are those are the issues that people are looking for looking for assistance in getting their startups starting. We want small businesses, especially black women entrepreneurs, to be helped because we know statistically that's where they're at. The Urban League prints usually, it used to print an annual State of Black America. They've done significant research on the State of Black America that any Democrat could lift up and open up, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and whoever, can open that up and look at the issues related to black people, but they wouldn't even take the time. They're doing talking points from the DNC, and they're not taking the time to look at what the issues are facing our people and taking those positions. They have to go to a hard left. They're not recognizable, and they're not going to get any traction from the black community. She's not going to win her own state. She's not liberal enough for her own state, and she's not conservative enough for black folks. Because I tell you, black people are tired of having family members killed. I've had three family members murdered, three from black men. And, you know, and if you want to talk on, you know, black lives matter, their lives matter too. We need to start addressing domestic violence toward black women and other issues. And we are not doing a good enough job, but our president is committed to those things. Our, um, another Detroiter, Michigander, uh, Dr. Ben Carson, um, is, is part of this when he's looking at opportunity zones, but he's also looking at how we can improve urban, urban communities. And he's looking at the family structure. He's looking at where we can um, make sure that we have intact families. We have a Welfare system that takes away and takes away money for families intact families, where you can't only you can only be supported if you are a single mo- mother, rather than a married family, having them have benefits and assistance and the bridge that they need um, for temporary assistance, and so our president Donald J Trump and our HUD um, secretary they're looking at how do we keep families intact, we know that that's the nucleus, that is the important part of every community is a family. And so how do we provide assistance to intact families instead of the destructive welfare benefits and the program that you cannot have a man or you can't have someone in the home and and still get benefits for your child. And it's been ridiculous and that has been the protocols and the practices of the liberal left that are not working. And so for me, they can identify however they want to, but Cory Booker's too too much. He's just too much. And so was Kamala Harris. It's just too much. And they've been drinking
5: their own Kool Aid and it's unfortunate. <laughs> You know, you said so many things that are right. And I, I have to say that the people listening to the show, some of them have such a sense of humor. Uh, we've got one guy for, for, that said Candace Owens for a president. I agree with that one. <laughs> that she one could be surprised. easily. I'm
6: telling
0: you, she could. <laughs> we want to get four and,
5: more years with Donald Trump first, and then we'll look at the next batch in uh, 2024. <laughs> And you mentioned uh, reparations, and uh, our buddy Sasquatch says, you know, does Obama pay to himself the reparations? Right, 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 right.
4: <laughs> Just how black do
5: you have but to Dr. be? Because Ta- I did my DNA testing. I'm like, okay. Dr. Tyra, it, it is has ridiculous. been a pleasure having you on. It has Thank been so you. much fun, and we've got to get you to come back on again. I'll have to talk to uh, Gabriella uh, to get you back on for us. Uh, it, it's so much fun. People can find you up on Amazon. And what's the name of your book again? And you're going to be sending me a copy? It's called Died in the Wool.
0: You'll have to send me your address. But it's called Died in the Wool by Dr. Linda Lee Tarver, and it's on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. And, and I, I want to say that the president was being very very biblical when he said he wanted the impeachment to uh, go do whatever you're going to do, you know, quickly hurry up and go ahead and impeach and uh, be quickly. But he was biblical because Jesus said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And so go ahead and do quickly, all Judas. Do what you got All to right.
4: Do.
5: But Have we win in day. the end. Amen. Amen. As Revelation says that. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. All right. Oh, man, so much fun. I wish we could have had her on for a full hour. It's just too much. We are so blessed to have great guests. Speaking of great guests, this is a friend of mine. I've known him for about a decade, he and his wife. uh, God bless the hard work they do, too. Also, let's welcome aboard Colin Heaton. Good afternoon, Colin. How are you today? Hoorah. Hey, Fanny, can you hear
7: me? All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
5: We can hear you. You sound a little distant.
2: Okay. Well, I'm on a cell phone, of course, but I hope that's better. better. Oh,
5: that's a lot better. A lot better. You know, I was doing my uh, research for having you on today, and I started delving into a certain topic that you had mentioned. And, oh, my goodness. I I mean, I spent hours going into this, and I'm wondering why Mm. you haven't written a book yet on it, and I'm sure it's in the works. But you have – to explain to the audience who you are, you are a veteran, first of the Army and then of the Marine Corps. Uh, you are a historian. You are a professor. You're also a speechwriter for uh, Major General Livingston. So you're all about a round man. And a lot of your historical novels uh, deal with not just World War II, uh, uh, but of other uh, issues and military things. And you give on both sides. And you've got a, one that's in the works i uh, wondering where you stand on this one. Uh, when They Killed Giants is your newest work that you're working on.
2: I kind of set that aside. I'm working on another uh, series of interview books like The German Aces Speak, and these are with the American veterans, the air veterans that I interviewed from World War II. So I'm working on that right now.
5: Oh, man. As a matter of fact, uh, recently we had um, one of the Tuskegee Airmen on the show. He would be a great person for you to hook up with, to talk with, because he was one of the pilots during World War II. i got to remember. i got to make a note to myself to uh, get you in touch with him.
2: Well, I'm an honorary Tuskegee Airman. I mean, I've known all of them, so I don't. which one was it?
5: He was a cousin of a friend of mine, and I, I'm going to have to look up his name, but I'll, I'll see if I can find it uh, and uh, send it, wasn't,
2: it to you. Uh, it, was, you may, it wasn't Chuck. It wasn't Chuck McGee, was it?
5: Was it Chuck McGee out of uh, Pensacola, Florida? Well,
2: mm-hmm. McGee doesn't live in Pensacola. Um, no, there, there, there are several. Lee Archer and some of the others have already passed away, so there are only a very few left now. Roscoe mm-hmm. Brown, uh, Brown, I think, is still around.
5: Yeah. I'm going to have to remember, because he had a statue that was built, that the Uh, community that he lives in put outside of their recreational center and it was vandalized uh, recently uh, which is why we were talking to him but I'll have to brain fart time so Colin, I'm getting gray hairs like the rest of us (laughs) so
4: I'm going to have to
5: look it up and get back to you on that one but like I said he was a cousin of a friend of mine, a gentleman I've known since the start of the Tea Party uh, started but um, you sent me a very interesting little blurb and from that i did my research and we have not done the dedication yet on the show because you asked us to dedicate the show to to this specific thing i mentioned it earlier at the start of the show that on december 12th of 1985 our air flight 1285 crashed in gander newfoundland killing 248 screaming eagle soldiers and eight crew members The soldiers killed mostly were assigned to the 3rd Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment, Strike and Kill, 2nd Brigade, 101st Airborne Division. But there's a lot more to the story behind it than what I just read.
2: Oh, yeah, there's a lot more to it. In fact, everybody involved had to sign non-disclosure agreements.
5: You know... um, I read through it, and there are, like, some strange gaps. Now, on this particular flight, it was going from Cairo uh, to Cologne, and then to – oh, Jesus. I'm just – I'm sorry. My brain is just not functioning – to Cologne, and from Cologne, it was supposed to go to uh, Newfoundland. But there were a lot of gaps in time. There were individuals that were civilians that were loading – Baggage onto the plane The baggage was not screened By any of the military The plane was not on a military base It was on a civilian airfield uh, At the time of the luggage Being put on there And uh, there's a lot of gaps As a matter of fact There was additional fire extinguishers Around the wheel wells That was abnormal For the normal equipment on the flight And so much has gone into this And yet the Canadian investigation as well as the United States investigation said there was nothing wrong with the flight. Everything was perfectly normal and it was ice on the wings and not an explosion in the plane. And Oh, by the way, there weren't two extra bodies on the plane.
2: Yeah, well, we did the body recovery. I was in that, in that unit. Um, We did the recovery and, uh, and I think the person you might want to get in touch with is Zona Phillips in Alabama. Her son was my friend, Doug Phillips, who was killed with some other friends of mine on that flight. She delved deep into the investigation and, and began ripping apart congressional findings. And a lot of gray areas occurred. They bulldozed the wreckage without taking it, the pieces apart to put it together like in most air tragedies. They, uh, You know, there are a lot of sketchy things going on with that. And also in Cairo. Uh, Sharm el Sheikh is the debarkation point. Uh, normally we have our own security around aircraft, but at that point in time, from my understanding, they left it to the Egyptians to provide security, which I found questionable. But you know, what do I know? All
5: right, well, there was a motion on the, the house on the House floor back on July 20th of 1989 by a representative from South Carolina, Mr. Tallent. And he also sent letters to um, Dick Cheney and Attorney General Richard Thornburg. But he had a list of questions that were put for him, and it might have been from Mrs. Phillips. I'm trying to see uh, who sent it. I'm just... Yes, from Ms. Zona Phillips. It was a letter she sent to Mr. Talon about the crash. And she had 30 questions, but he expanded upon the questions. So I'm going to go through the questions that she asked, and this way we can talk about exactly what was going on, uh, because there were a number of questions about how many people actually were on the flight and who the individuals were and why certain individuals were on the flight and what. Was their purpose Um, So First question she asked is Why were air charters used rather than Military aircraft to transport Now it was going to be three different groups Of military personnel The first group were those that were married And the guys that were single Said no you guys go first It's the Christmas holidays coming up We want you to get home and spend the most time With your family And since we're single We'll take the back seat So these were all married individuals heading home. So when this flag crashed, it wasn't just the loss of these 248 military men. It was the devastation of whole families. So why was a charter used and not a military plane?
2: Well, the the military's always had a habit of using charters mainly, I guess, to save money and – to maintain allocation of aircraft assets for other purposes. I've flown charter when I deployed various places, Um, sometimes military, sometimes charter. It just depended upon DOD's reasoning and and their budgetary constraints, I suppose.
5: Well, you know, she goes on to ask why, and you mentioned it earlier, why was there such lack of security especially in cairo and cologne now if you think back about it we've had several instances where baggage handlers have been known to place explosive devices on planes as they were assigned to the the airline we recently had an incident with someone here right in the jfk that the bombing was you know prevented because we got to the fact that he was an islamic jihadist it was finally revealed, and he was pulled off the line and prosecuted. But this has been going on for decades. So why was security so lax when it dealt with military personnel?
2: Well, you have to ask somebody with a higher pay grade than myself. <laughs> I, I can't explain that one. Yeah, these are, these All are I know a lot is well, good well, Zona – I spoke to Zona. She actually called me. I knew her. her son. And, uh, and as soon as, well, many of my friends who were married on that flight, Jerry Malone, Ed Mannion, and we, we pulled the burial details. We did the escorts. We did the burial details. And that was pretty tough duty because that was before Christmas and then through January. And we, we traveled the country, just, uh, going to hometowns and, you know, doing the, the rifle squads, the flag ceremony and everything. And, you know, and some of these people you knew because you played with their kids, and you're looking in the face of these these families, and they're looking at you like, you know, why are you here, and why is my husband gone, or my son, or my whatever. And Zona never never gave me the gave me that trip. She was really cool about it, but she was adamant to find answers. And uh, and I and she knew I was on the detail, and I just told her, I said, I don't have answers to those questions. I wish I did, but I don't and uh I lost a lot of friends on that one.
5: Now you you ate with these guys, you slept with these guys, you fought alongside these guys. Now you were on a NATO detail. It was right after the peace agreement between Egypt and Israel, and that was signed in 1979. This is now 81 when NATO was finally, you know, tasked with, you know, doing the uh, the peace detail. And you had no casualties while you were out there in the field. You know, you're going home. You're thinking everything's going to be okay. We're on our way home. It's over. And then for this to happen and have no answers.
2: Well, and have the your own problem covered up. Well, the biggest problem that I had was why would you bulldoze a wreckage? Why would you silence the eyewitnesses who saw the flash in the sky? Why would you? go to those lengths unless there was a greater, I don't want to use the word conspiracy or cover-up, but I'm just telling you that there were so many unanswered questions. Zona knows it. I knew it. And everybody was just like, so you sit in the barracks in the Jeep bays and you're waiting to, you're in your class A uniform, ready to go jump on a plane to go carry some coffins. And you're thinking, you're just wondering why, you know, and why is there so little information because if a helicopter goes down and I've seen a few go down, if your helicopter goes down, you know there's a complete investigation report right down to what they had for dinner the night before. Uh, this didn't have any of those details
5: yeah there's so many questions, and they have never ever been answered. You know no one has ever released the cargo manifest; there has never been a release of the passenger manifest. And there's questions whether or not there was 256 people on the plane or 258, because after what they assumed all the bodies were recovered, a few years later they found two more bodies at the crash site.
2: So yeah, know, they were in these the snow. things are. Well, not all the bodies were recovered accounted not all the bodies have been recovered recovered accounted for from my understanding is that as the snow began to melt in the spring they began to find a more and priority on that crash site was recovering weapons recovering classified materials recovering bodies um, and but with that with that weather the way it was it's not it's not uncustomary to have people ejected thrown from the aircraft as it separated into four sections uh, and then the snow starts to melt, and you start finding people. But you know, and I'm sure they'll never disclose who that was because everybody was buried and accounted for according to the official record.
5: You know, there's there's so many gaps in the story here, and as I started going through it, I'm like, how can our government not do a full and complete investigation? Like the FBI was sent up there to assist with the investigation, but they were never allowed. Onto the field, they were never allowed to touch any of the evidence. they were only there, they were only given the task of verifying fingerprints. And, you know, right,
2: and bear in mind, well, bear in mind, the NTSB didn't get a hands on. The Canadians handled that.
5: A lot of evidence was then flown to an airport um, I think I believe it was in Michigan. And it was a question as to why evidence was flown there and never released.
2: Well, I can only say this. I don't have all the answers, but I know this, that unless there's a greater cover-up, then why would you not just display the information? I mean, Lockerbie, Scotland in 1989, when the Libyans blew that sucker up, I mean, there was full disclosure right down to the color of the hair of the passengers. So why would you not have that uh, same information provided after Gander?
5: It's a lot, of, a lot of unanswered questions here. Um, and why did they stop in Gander to refuel? That's not a normal place to stop. And not only that, Gander Airport, the way the plane came down, there was only one road in and out. So the truck fire trucks had a hard time even getting in there to extinguish the, the, the flames,
2: much less yeah, recovery yeah it's a remote area it it really is It's pretty rugged, and I don't know why Gander was the selected uh refueling point uh there are several other options. Halifax, Nova Scotia would have probably been better, but I don't know
5: yeah your your friend Zona asked another question which you know had me curious. They're saying that why did certain men write or call home and see upset about something before the crash so someone saw something someone knew something. And they were silenced.
2: Well, I've heard that, too. And uh, like I say, Zona Phillips and I had quite a few long phone calls, and I and, and I wasn't on the aircraft of naturally, so I don't know all the answers. And she was trying to find the answers. I mean, she lost her son. I mean, that's understandable, you know? And, uh, and to make tragedy worse for Zona that uh, – that Doug wasn't even in the ground when his wife who was from South Korea took their daughter and went back home. And so she never got to see her granddaughter from what I understand. But, uh, it's just, it's just nuts. I mean, the whole situation didn't make any sense to anyone involved. Uh, but we, you know, we, we did our job. We brought the bodies home. We got them to Dover. We, we, we got them to Dover from Dover. We, you know, president Reagan came to Campbell with Nancy Reagan and he, he, you know, went down the line and, you know he really made it a personal personal uh mission to be there for the families and everybody, so that was good. You know he was that kind of guy. that was the second time I met him, and he remembered me from the year before but uh, yeah I, I i i when you see the anguish in the faces of those families, it's not just the anguish of losing someone it's the anguish of not having the answers to the questions that they have, and that's i think the deep the deeper hurt if that makes any sense. Yeah,
5: it it is a deeper hurt. And as my co-host Curtis, who happens to be a Navy vet, uh mentions in our chat room, it sounds like the type of same type of cover up we had with Extortion 17, where families were never given a full answer. And they right. why were the bodies cremated before they were even sent home for forensic uh autopsy? You know, it seems the same thing because 9 hours after the crash is when the site was bulldozed Nine hours? You can't do a full investigation in nine hours. And yet the crash site, before the fires were out, before the bodies were recovered, were bulldozed.
2: I can only assume. I have my own theory, and I'm not propagating this as fact. I don't know, but my own theory was the Camp David Peace Accord might have been shaken because it was under Egyptian uh, security. And if the Egyptians had been complicit in that, whether not, not governmental, but even if just individuals with sympathetic sympathetic leanings uh had been involved, that would have been a big black eye between Egyptian and even Israeli and American relations because uh and I think that probably may have been the greater cause. Um but I'm just guessing. I don't know. That's the only thing that makes sense to me.
4: Yeah. Well Sounds
2: plausible. one of the
5: things that, that Yeah. One of the things that your friend Zona also asked is, you know, who was the CID officer on board, and what was his task? And why did the Pentagon, within hours, change their story about him? At first, he was supposed to be bringing something home, some evidence of some sort, some investigation he was doing. And suddenly the Pentagon says, oh, no, he was just a tourist and just getting a ride home. They changed it within hours. Something fishy was going on.
2: Well... I don't know too many tourists who would hit your ride on a chartered military aircraft. <laughs> that's just my,
7: <laughs>
2: that's just my take on it, you know, but, uh, like I I say,
7: met, like.
2: well, I mean, you know, I, like I say, I don't really understand all of that. I don't, I only know what I know from my hands on, um, and reading the reports. I read the congressional reports, the inquiries going on and all of that. and, yeah, I, it's very unsettling to me still to this day because it's been 34 years and uh and every December 12th 13th, you know, I don't sleep well and it's just it's something that you just live with. You know, and it's not so much losing your guys, you understand that's a pro, that's a possibility in the military service, especially the kind of work we were doing, but but it's, you feel for the families, you feel for them because you know them, you know the kids. I mean, you go to the Christmas things and whatever, you know, birthdays. Sometimes, you know, I got to play, you know, I got to play with some of these guys, and then you're looking at them, you know, over a casket, you know, and then they get a folded flag and a thank you for your thank you for your thank you for your uh, husband's service, and uh, then they're dismissed. The only good thing that came out of that tragedy was they doubled these GLI, so. I don't know.
5: What's the GLI?
2: The service members group life insurance. It used to be $50,000 after gender, Congress approved $100,000. Now I think it's like 400000 or something. I don't know. Ah. But because the families, I mean, within like a week or two of losing their loved one, they're getting kicked out of uh, government housing. So, you know, it's just, there's not a lot yeah. of sympathy there.
5: No, no, there's not, <laughs> And you know I used to be married to Marines, so I understand that very well you know once once your your tour is over or once someone passes away within days you have to be gone. you know there's no ends, ifs or buts about that and it it's it's frustrating it is frustrating. Right. Now, the, I see a... the,
4: the,
2: the last thing one of these- one last thing one of these families needs is a pressure point to be evicted, and they're still mourning, they're still grieving.
5: Yeah, that is true. That is very true. And you're just a number. You know, I found out the same thing when I retired from NYPD. You're, you're just a number. Once you're gone, boom, it's as if you never existed before. Bye. That's it. You're cut off. And what that does to families and to people that are have been separated, you know, it, it's devastating.
2: Well here's another comparative analysis for you. Think about two years, uh twenty six months before Gander. Remember the Beirut barracks? Yes. Uh two hundred and what, forty something Marines and sailors and a couple of Army. Two hundred and
5: forty four.
2: Yeah. I think it
5: was two hundred and forty four. uh a couple there... of them had been stationed with my husband.
2: Yeah, and they're one of the guys I went to high school with. I mean, so it's like uh, there was absolutely nothing but full disclosure and openness about that. There was no issue. I mean, we knew who did it. We knew what happened. We know that uh,
1: the situation
2: was mainly due to the fact of the uh, rules of engagement, which you know, which were modified by President Reagan after that. And he, of course, because of Beirut, he also modified the receipt of the Purple Heart for acts of terrorism, which I agree with. Uh, but uh, we, we've never seen anything like that until, until Gander, and Gander was just one of those – it's written off as an anomaly, but I just feel there's a lot more to it. Well, I know there's a lot more to it than we know. I just can't fathom why there would not be full disclosure unless it had a greater political consequence attached to it.
5: there's a lot of questions as to why individuals were not questioned such as additional uh, air arrow pilots, people that witnessed the explosion and the crash, uh, ground crews um, there's so many people were not even interviewed that would have pertained directly and have direct information and possibly evidence on the investigation but it wasn't done
2: it's like that's well,
5: it. crash bike.
2: Well, I mean, think about it. You have a more thorough investigation after a car runs a stop sign and t-bones a school bus. So, you know, I mean, you have a for, you have a more thorough, detailed investigation and 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 uh, paperwork filed on a traffic accident than you did on this. I mean, that's what I can't understand.
5: Well, you know, even when it, the investigation was done and reviewed, out of the panel that reviewed it, it went, you know, uh, five to four, I believe, four dissenting, four saying that they believe that it was ample evidence by what was going on inside the plane to say that there was explosion in the plane, that someone actually used one of the fire extinguishers. There was evidence of one of the fire extinguishers being dispersed prior to the plane being crashed. And what really tore my heart the most is that the autopsy evidence in some of the individuals that was done, they may have survived as much as five minutes while having various amputations from the explosion in the plane. So it wasn't an instant death for them. Some of them. Yeah, I've
2: I've I've heard not seen I've heard that there are reports that there was lung damage due to smoke inhalation and uh, and heat on the cella of the lungs, which means that they were probably inhaling whatever was occurring on that aircraft before impact.
5: Uh, it, it, there's so much that she has asked in this one, you know, because they say that the plane went down tail first, and it was possible engine number four was in reverse, but none of this was in the Canadian report. None of this was in the NSTB report.
2: Well, here's my question. Where's the black box report? You've got three on that aircraft.
5: The voice recorder with no evidence of it having been uh, entered into evidence. You know, it, it's never been reviewed. Why? It's not in any yep. of the reports anywhere. Well, uh, you've got also the voice recorder. That...
2: Yeah. You have the voice recorder. You have the voice recorder. You have the aerodynamic gyroscopic information that contains contained, I believe, on the DC-9 and the tail boom. Uh, you have multiple redundant backup systems. I mean, and all of these are recorded. And those boxes, you know, can can withstand a lot of damage. Uh, and what I can't understand is why didn't the information get transcribed and uh, digitized out and uh, and released? That's the black the, the boxes tell the story of what was going on from an electronic viewpoint, and I think that that was that was critical. And I don't believe any of that was ever released. I could be wrong, but I don't I don't recall it being released.
5: No, and there's there's two devices on a plane if there's fire on the plane. And both of those devices, one of them being a cockpit signal, that said that there was a fire on the plane prior to it crashing.
2: Well, that would explain the eyewitness stating he saw a flash in the air before the aircraft impacted into the forest.
5: Now, also, the captain's airspeed card was never reconstituted. Uh, it was found mm-hmm. on the yoke in a burn condition, but they never tried to patch it together to find out what was going on because there was questions about the airspeed. Because the plane was took off. For some reason, it looked like it was having problems to ascend. And there were eyewitnesses because it crossed over a highway and there were people that were driving and watching this plane in distress before it finally came down. You know, so there's a lot of things that were not done. This was not an investigation. This I'm sorry. I'm going to say it flat out. It was a massive cover up.
2: Well, there's nobody, there's nobody aware of it or involved in it in any degree who would disagree with you, but the question is what is being covered up. You know, that's that's the question. And nobody, I mean, nobody bulldozes a crash site in just over a week after an impact without taking all the pieces, putting them together. You know how it is when they put an aircraft together, they do the forensic autopsy on the remains of the aircraft. The NTSB combs through that sucker like detectives. You know, they're taking scrapings. They're taking pictures. They're taking measurements. They're looking at data recordings. They're checking the blueprints, constructions, uh, stress Analysis on the fuselage. They're doing everything, but nothing. Nothing was done.
5: No, and it's, people were not interviewed. Investigations were not done, and the plane, if it came down the way the investigators claimed it came down because of ice on the wings, where were the ground scars from the tail section and landing gear? There were none. This guy came sucker came down tail first and went boom, flat out.
2: Yeah. Well, like I say, yeah. that's a mystery that I can't solve, and we won't, we won't solve it on this program, but I just think that at some point in time, someone on their deathbed who has these secrets might cough that stuff up. I don't know.
5: We can only pray, but I want to get the word out so people are aware of what happened on uh, Flight 1281 back on December 12th of 1985, that there is – uh, 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 falsified investigations no other way to say it some of the facts that are in the investigation have been falsified flat out wrong and the real facts have never been answered on this one As a matter of fact the firefighters who worked the crash site they were all be, were, became ill from headaches nausea blood and liver problems and yet they were never tested no one ever did blood urine or x-rays on these individuals but they were labeled with post traumatic stress disorder what was on that flight what is it that they don't want us to know that was on that plane what was loaded
2: that's a good question i've heard the rumors but i don't like rumors i i'd rather not state rumors and just state you know the logically possible um i don't know i mean i've heard everything from craziness to uh the plausible and I, I really have no idea what could have been on that aircraft that would have been so toxic, other than maybe several hundred, you know. Nick had, you know, the bat, the magnesium batteries for the radios, the PRC-77s, and things like that. I, you know, but if they burn, they burn. But uh, that you'd have to have a hell of a lot of batteries to cause those types of uh, of situations to human beings. Yeah,
5: absolutely. You know, uh, but there's also questions whether or not Arrow Air was making regular flights into the Sinai, and there was questions about why they were going between Sinai and a certain location in South and Central America. Questioning whether or not, and I'm putting this out. This is something I read. Whether or not it's true or not, whether or not there's a tie to the Iran Contra scandal. That's one of the well, theories that were put out.
2: Well, don't get me started on that one because I have some – well, let's just say that I don't want to go to jail, so I'm (laughs) I'm not going to say anything. I just – there are some questions I could answer, but uh, if I got diagnosed with six months to live and had nothing to lose, I'd talk. But right now, I I expect (laughs) to have another 20, 30 years ahead of me, so I'm going to keep going.
5: Oh, you're a young thing.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Colon. Yes sir don't you, don't you think uh, one of the reasons why Americans uh, believe in a lot of conspiracies and do not trust government is because of what happened um with j f k and r f k and martin luther king and I mean some people don't even believe that um who we dumped in the ocean was osama bin Laden you know there's there's a distrust. Distrust of Americans of our government. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I
2: I don't think it's just our government. I think people in general have a great mistrust of uh, government in general. Remember, there's an old Albanian proverb that says, "Fire and water, like government, shows no mercy." Uh, I think that uh, people are naturally suspicious of government because it's not something that they can control except through the electoral process, which they believe is going to rectify past wrongdoings. I just think that government is powerful enough to be self-sustaining regardless of the individual's concerns, and I think that's probably since the days of chieftains, after we crawled out of caves and started building civilizations, people in power have never been really trusted.
5: Yeah, and and there's sometimes... As, for example, this crash of Arrow Flight 1285 is a good reason to show why we really shouldn't uh, trust government, that we should always question and look for answers on our own.
2: Well, there's also another saying, a man who doesn't question the results of government bureaucracy is a victim of it. Um, So I don't know. Like I say, there there are so many conspiracy theories out there about everything, and you could you could spend the rest of your life spinning your wheels and digging in the mud, to try to figure things out. I, I'm a historian, so I'm not a detective. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just write history from the interviews of people that I meet. And, uh, I find it kind of tragic that, uh, you know, here I am a grandfather now and, uh, and I'll think about those guys, my age, 22, 23, 24, you know, who, who may have had kids, some who, You know, a couple of wives were expecting when their husbands were lost. I mean, that's what I—that's the to me, that's the tragedy. Yeah, the lives were lost, but like you said, the, the the lives of those families were forever changed, and not for the better.
5: No, no not for the better at all. You know, some people have made the best of what they could do and you have people that are still fighting for the truth like your friend Sona Phillips and I'm I'm so thankful that I was able to pull this up on the internet and finding Representative Talent had the guts and courage to bring it onto the floor of the House to look around uh, Cheney and say, hey, what has happened here? What are the answers? We haven't had the answers yet, but He had the courage to do that, and we've got to get more people to have the courage to say to government, What is going on here? What are you not telling us?
2: Well, I'll give you a a backstory on this. In in 2014, I think, I received a phone call out of the blue from a guy who was married with kids, but I hadn't seen him since he was a child. I served with his father in Europe and with his father. In the hundred and first, and I won't mention the names. I don't want to bring that up. But he called me and asked me some questions. Asked me my name, and he said, uh, "Do you remember me?" And I'm like, "Well, who are you?" He gave me his name, and I knew exactly who he was. And hadn't seen the guy in like 30 years. And uh, and I, he said, "I just want to say thanks for bringing my dad home." Oh wow. And uh, wow. I kind of, I kind of lo- lost it. You know, Ann was looking at me and she says, What's wrong? And I said I told her who called and why he called and that I was kind of like uh dysfunctional the rest of that day. But, you know, it was nice that he looked me up, you know, saw the website, you know, and called me. I, how's is doing? Says she'd remarry, doing fine. How, how how's his brother and sister? They they're doing fine and you know, and I haven't heard from him since. But uh you know, that's that's his legacy, you know.
5: Oh, it's, it's a powerful statement, it's a very powerful statement. You know, it, it, when you find that you have touched someone's life and it meant something to them, it, it, it's a blessing from God. It is. And the fact that you were able to be there at the right time to help them. So don't lose it on me because you're going to make me lose it, too.
2: Yeah. So, what are we going to talk about next?
5: <laughs> All right. Uh, I remember the name of the gentleman we had interviewed. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart.
2: Oh, Harry Stewart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry Stewart. I haven't seen him in years. I, I think the last time I saw him was 2004 at the Tuskegee Airmen's Reunion.
5: Yeah, there is a book out there about him called Soaring to Glory, and it was back in June that we had interviewed him. So. Took a little bit of the gray cells to to function. Now I'm you gonna change subjects completely on you because this is also an area that you have some knowledge on about the Muslim countries, and we've got uprisings going on in Iraq, Lebanon, Sudan, Algeria, and the ironic thing in these Muslim countries, the individuals who are leading these protests, actually vocally leading these protests are women. That is Yeah. That is phenomenal.
2: Well the big ones Iran. The big ones are ran. And uh and I still have Iranian friends who are in contact with family, such as they can be right now. But uh yeah, uh all these uh the big let me explain something to people listening who may not get this, maybe they know it, but the biggest reason why you're having all of these uprisings in Islamic countries, because Islamic countries by their very nature of rule are totalitarian. And totalitarian nations have always experienced their uprisings or their revolutions. I mean, we we rose up against George III. And uh, so, you know, we created a country out of it. Well, these people wanted to create a more, you know, moderate, uh, more acceptable country, you know, that can play as an equal partner on the world stage. Iranian dissidents right now, for instance, with I think the numbers are over 1,000 killed. And uh, I think that uh, especially in Iran— you have to understand that 70% of that population are under the age of 30. And they're very tech savvy, they're internet smart, they know they know computers, they understand the internet, but many of them have Western educations and they speak more than one language. And many of them speak English, French or German. And so they have friends in these countries and, uh, and they see the sanctions hitting them hard that President Trump put on them, which I totally agree with to offset the 150 billion dollars that uh our previous uh person of interest uh, gave to them <laughs> and uh and I and and the Iranian people know that all this money they're making especially from their the black market oil deals with North Korea is going to fund their proxy fighters Hamas Hezbollah and now ISIS working in Syria so the Iranian revolution has been expanded to other borders internationally to help subvert governments and to propagate and expand islamic terror to the detriment of the people and the people aren't stupid you know so therefore these people young people are rising up and saying look we had enough of this you know, the people who are now the grandchildren of the people who've led the 79 revolt against uh, the Shah with Ayatollah Khomeini in 79 are now looking back going, wow, our grandfather screwed us over because look at what we're dealing with now. You know, and they see the the, the greater world for what it is. They know they're missing out on it. And you can't take somebody under the age of 30, let's say in their 20s, who just has a college degree, came back home. They're hoping to get a decent job. They're hoping to raise a family. They're hoping to maybe jump into the IT markets. And they've got a country that's strangling the hell out of them economically. They have no freedoms, uh, not compared to the freedoms that we enjoy, which the liberals tend to take for granted and think that socialism was a great idea, even though history proves this failed on every front. But – these people are—they're are, rising up, hoping to get attention, and they're hoping to get help. And I wrote a book. I wrote several books. The one book I wrote about this, I put a phrase in there that no insurgency has ever been completely successful without a foreign intervener supporting the insurgent. We couldn't have won the American Revolution without the French. People don't realize that, mm-hmm. but the French Navy—the French Navy kept the British out of Chesapeake Bay, so we could win Yorktown. Um, so it's, it's a very simple process of people wanting what they don't have and understanding that they are victims of a government that puts their priorities of power above the needs of the people. And any time you do that, societies will revolt.
5: Well, what's amazing is, is the fact that women have come to the forefront in these revolts. You know, Under Islamic totalitarianism, and they're left in their burqas in the kitchen or in the bedroom, and they're not allowed anywhere else unless a man accompanies them. But the women have found a voice, and the, those in, in power are reluctant to act against women for no, because it may give a bad impression. So it kind of emboldens them, and it's helping to fuel these protests, the fact that women are breaking what they call the mental ceiling. And so, maybe there is hope that something will come out of this, something good
2: I don't think it's going to change anything because first of all, the Iranian government, the military in particular the the Iranian revolutionary guard they're not going to sacrifice their power, prestige, and they're not standing in food lines to uh to cultivate a, a more prosperous and fuzzy feeling with their populace. They're not going to give up their prestige and power uh the Iranian people while revolting, are hoping for a miracle. And and unless you have an intervention from multiple nations with the UN condemnation, of which, of course, the Russians may or may not support, they have a veto power on being one of the Security Council permanent members, uh, the Chinese would never support it because they're getting oil as well from Iran. Uh, they're really, to use a phrase, pissing in the wind. And I, I applaud their effort, and I, I empathize with their with their their wishes, but unless you have an external intervention such as Pakistan or someone or maybe put a carrier task force off and bomb a few of those uh, hidden nuclear facilities that we know they have and just rock the boat a little bit, shake the foundations of uh, Khomeini's regime, they're just going to die for an idea and it's not going to change anything.
5: Well, don't you think then that may be a reason behind why Trump and the Pentagon may be sending additional 700 boots on the ground to the area?
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Let me tell you, even though I was a Marine, I'll give the Navy credit for one thing. The moment you park a carrier task force offshore of a country, you've just told that country, we have our eye on you and we have a heavy boot print to put on your back if you screw up. Uh, nothing's more powerful than a carrier task force sitting offshore. That is the greatest statement of American foreign policy you will ever make.
5: Oh, Absolutely. And we're looking at a, at Trump who's not doing what a predecessor does, allowing them to capture a naval vessel and hold its its crew hostage. That is not going to happen under this president.
2: More than no, a plane no, no, of
5: money is going to go to our enemy.
2: No, I think the, the Iranians are not stupid people. They played Barack Obama like a cheap violin, and uh, and his Muslim sympathies uh, allowed him to release those monies that had been held in escrow ever since the Iranian Revolution, as well as for other crimes against humanity that the Iranians have been responsible for. Uh, Donald Trump is of a different – he's a different cut of cloth. Donald Trump is a kind of man, and I know this for a fact because I know people who know him. In fact, he kissed uh, Ann at the damn Tea Party convention. I didn't care. Uh <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, uh, one of the things I do know is this. Khomeini is not an idiot. He might be a religious zealot, and he might be a fanatic, and he might be a ruthless tyrant, but he's not a fool. And I don't think under this president he's going to risk sending his uh, patrol boats out to try to capture a naval vessel or even harass, harass the fleet. Uh, I, he knows well. He knows well. President Trump is a kind of man who's very Reagan-esque, and if you hit that tripwire, then you're going to have a whole ton of hurt come down on you. And I don't think that even the liberals can scream about that because they keep complaining about, oh, you know, these lives matter, those lives matter. Well, I'll tell you what, if all lives matter to you, then don't complain or bitch about it if he decides to take a strike option to save a few thousand, hundred thousand people who are getting slaughtered by their own government.
5: Well, it looks like, though, uh, Trump, through Pompeo, is trying to unite various areas of the Middle East, such as Morocco, to work with us on the Iran situation.
2: Sure. Well, Morocco and Jordan are the only two Hashemite kingdoms in the Islamic world. and. And we have good allies with Morocco. Morocco really is a moderate Islamic country, even though they have a king, because why? 90% of their, their revenue is derived from tourism. Well, the minute you start getting radically Muslim on people, tourism dries the hell up. You don't make any money. And King Abdullah Jordan, uh, I know a lot about him. I met his father once. Um, he's a very intelligent man. He He has reservations about things occurring near his border, but he has two – Realities that he must live with. One, he must understand. He does understand that Israel is not his enemy. If anything, Israel is going to be his friend. And the second thing that he understands is that the United States and NATO, such as it is, we are NATO. Don't, don't be misled by anybody else's statements. That the United States, sitting with its uh, with its uh, traveling power. Uh, is a very forceful ally in containing the expansions of Iranian uh, desire. And the Israelis, if you think what they did in '81 when they hit Iraq's nuclear facility, if you think the Iranians are going to sit by and let the Iranians build up more nuclear centrifuges, spin that uh, uranium-235, or even get plutonium triggers, well, sit back and enjoy the show, because the the, the Israelis are not going to let that happen. And I can almost assure you from my perspective, that we will not only turn a blind eye, we might even supply refueling aircraft to make sure those F-16s and F-15s get back. So I think the Iranians are in a very precarious situation. Their population has totally flipped the tables on them. The only thing they understand is ruthless retaliation. And once once you go that route, there is no turning back. You either destroy the insurgency or you succumb to it. And Khomeini is not going to succumb to it, not without outside intervention.
5: Well, you know, there was a question because Trump had said we're going to pull all of our troops out of the Middle East. And that seemed to have been slow walk. So there was questions about whether or not um, the military was in a deep state defiance, or maybe Trump rethought things. You know, what's your vision on this? I mean, what's your view?
2: If I had to take a guess – I would say that he probably had a meeting with his joint chiefs, and he had a meeting with his trusted intelligence experts, not the idiots sitting there pantomiming on an impeachment hearing, uh, that the presence of the U.S. is critical in certain areas. You can't you can't escape it. I mean, people can say, well, we don't need to be the world's policeman." No, but we can sure as hell be the world's surveillance organization and see what's going on, and then we can direct traffic. We can say, okay, Western Europe, NATO, you guys take this. Turkey, you know, stop doing your ridiculous nonsense and do this because we have the power. We have the power of the purse and the power of the gun. And you know, the Israelis are sitting there in the middle of all this, watching, and they're in a perpetual state of survival. They're not just—they're not just a country sitting there watching the news. They're living it, so they have to be, you know, also protected. And uh, the Saudis are also very concerned I mean, the Saudis and Iranians, there's no love loss between the Sunni, the Shia, even the Bahabists So you have to look at that dynamic That's why it's so easy for Trump to get that coalition together Because everyone mistrusts and hates Iran
5: Absolutely You know, you mentioned um, impeach Now, I'm going to tell people to go to Org. There is impeach and remove rallies that are going to be going on the day before the House votes on impeachment. And there are going to be rallies at all of the uh, representatives' offices across all 50 states. And they've already planned it for beer can Joe Cunningham. Uh, But we don't have a date or time because we don't know when the House is going to decide to schedule the full House vote on impeachment. So I'm telling everyone out here, and you've got to love this, Colin. Go on to that site, sign up for the email alerts so you know when that rally is going to be that's hosted by George Soros MoveOn.org, and we can counter-protest. We've already done that to them once before on the impeachment issue. Uh, we're going to do it again, and you know we're pretty active down here in, in Beaufort County. So <laughs> I'm just telling everyone to go on to the move MoveOn.org, act.moveon.org.
2: Yeah, George Soros, fascinating character. I actually have some details and info on him that I can't you – know, you he couldn't be indicted for what, his, what he as a teenager did during World War II or his family. But uh, we know for a oh, fact yeah. that his family were – we know his family were Nazi collaborators. We also know that uh, – I know this because I interviewed a survivor. Uh, when I was in Austria, I met her. She was a Hungarian Jew who uh, managed to survive, but her family was wiped out in Auschwitz when Adolf Eichmann came in in uh, April of '44 and decided to uh, force uh, Admiral Miklos Horthy, the regent of of Hungary, to forcibly hand over his Jews. He refused. He didn't want to do that. So the Green Arrow group joined the SS. They rounded him up. And, of course, they had their Hungarian stooges who supported them, and Soros' family, despite being Jewish, were running their black market schemes, according to what my witness I talked to said, and that uh, they were extorting money and furs and jewelry from people to keep them safe. And once the money, furs, and jewelry ran out. They called them over to be in a good uh, the good graces, the group and then the Sisha Heistienst. So anyway, that's my little thing on George Soros.
4: <laughs>
5: well, if people go onto their website, they already have a list of talking points as well as chants. <laughs> and they say, I say people, you say power. People, power, people, power. What do we want? Impeach. When do we want it? Now. And you got hey hey ho <laughs> ho Donald Trump has got to go. I I'm going to try to rewrite these so that when they start their lines and they say I say people,
4: <laughs> I don't go, well, I'm going to think I, of I
2: an, a, Well, I have a chant too. You know, I get up the bed, I get out of bed, and I go to work. The socialism's never worked, you know, and uh, <laughs> so all these uh, so all all these people, all all these idiots out there who mostly are are. The, uh, and I was a professor. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, people think professor. God, he must be a liberal. Oh, my God. You don't know me. Um, but anyway, but all of these professors, these liberal types who have e- enclaved and enslaved, and just, I used to term enslaved because they they've totally restrained free thought on these campuses around the country. And what they've done is they've force-fed these people from freshman year, even in high school, even in public schools, you get a lot of it. And so these people are not worried about evidentiary hearings, they're not worried about due process, they're worried about following a mindset that follows and flows with what they've been brought up to believe. So that's tragic because I I told my students when I was teaching, I said, I don't want you to agree with me. You don't have to agree with each other. I said, but I want you to think for yourself, and I don't have to agree with your your thesis statement in your term paper, but convince me you did the research, convince me you believe it, show me why, and you'll pass. I didn't fail anyone because they didn't come to the same conclusion as I did because conclusions are simply historical fact. As long as you're historically factual, you're good to go. Well, why should the same rule not apply to impeaching a president? Where, where are the facts?
5: There are none. There are none. It turns out that two of the witnesses flat-out lied. Two of those, those uh,
4: Judiciary,
5: there, constitutional, well, you, jurists Flat-out lied.
2: Two two people testified in Adam Schiff's clown court lied? Oh, please tell me that's not true. Uh,
5: no, Nadler's, Schiff, Nadler's clown court.
2: Oh, well, Nadler, well, he's just as bad. I mean, think about it. Between Schiff and Nadler, <laughs> between Schiff and Nadler, You've got, I mean, the, putting those two in charge of anything is like watching a, a blind man juggle hand grenades. It, it's not going to come out well for anybody. So, I'm just, I, I'm shocked that, uh, I'm shocked that they've even let it go this far. But then again, maybe it's a good thing they did because as they go through this process, let them go to the vote. Let them go to the vote. Let them get the majority of the uh, liberal idiots to vote for impeachment. Then it goes to the Senate, and here's the beauty of it. Lindsey Graham's no idiot either. He has the power to pull people with subpoena and have them testify. And if you start pulling in the Bidens, you start pulling in Nadler, you start pulling I- – I can't wait to see how much of how many of these people try to invoke special privilege, and I show the hell up to testify at the Senate hearing. Absolutely,
5: and guess what? Every single Republican, I'm uh, not Republican. Every single Democrat that's in a purple state or in a red state that's running for re-election, they better rethink how they vote. And what gets me so angry, Colin, is that Adam Schiff has this re-election pack. Adam Schiff last year raised something like only about three hundred thousand dollars for his re-election. This past year, prior to the impeachment hearings, he raised something like six million dollars. Now, to 44 members of the House, he has donated to their re-election uh, 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 fund or whatever you want to call it. He has taken money out of his own reelection pact and has given it to these other members of the House. Now, that's the same as the prosecutor and judge bribing the jury. If we had done this in a regular court of law, They would have been charged with tampering with the jury and leave behind bars. But Adam Schiff has done this, knowing full well he was going to hold the impeachment hearings. He has bribed the ones that will vote for impeachment.
2: Well, that shouldn't surprise you. I mean think about it this way. If this thing were handled anything like or – I'm not a lawyer by any stretch of the imagination. But if this thing had been handled like any sort of regular judiciary process where you panel a grand jury, you gather the evidence, okay – then it goes to a jury or at least goes to a collective group of people with IQs in three digits who can at least be, you know, bipartisan. This hasn't happened and and no one expects it to be otherwise and the Senate's going to take corrective action. So I'm not even sweating it. I think what they just did, they handed Donald Trump 2020.
5: Absolutely. And as we see, voters are walking away from the Democratic Party, and Trump is getting more and more black voters from the Democratic Party. They're losing confidence in their own party, and they're saying, hey, this is a dog and pony show. Something's going on here, and something's got to stop. And we're going well, to
2: Democrat- well, the Democratic Party today—the best analogy I can give you is the Democratic Party today is like the Titanic. Rather than acknowledge there's a hole in the hole, just keep bailing out the water and telling everybody everything's fine, even though you're going down deeper and deeper. They just won't acknowledge reality. You know, they won't do it, and they can't because why? Well, if they drop everything, like the Mueller, like the Mueller investigation, then it shows that they were they were idiots and they can't even complete the mission. And if they continue on and they lose, and they'll just you know complain and bitch that you know, hey, the the, the the deck was stacked against us. So look at all. There is a deep state. It's Republicans. Look what they did. You know, I say let it roll, let it roll. And, and General and, and President Trump is right. Let it roll. Let it play all the way out. Don't even try to stop it. Just open the doors and let the clown squad roll in, and let them do their do their three wing circus and freak show. You know, roll the donkeys in, the unicorns. Let them do their stuff, and then let the Senate sort it out. And then after it's all said and done, the dust settles. The American people will look back and go. Wow, that was about $100 million collectively between Mueller and this, this show that could have been better served maybe, I don't know, housing homeless veterans. How about giving the St. Jude's to, to, to cure children cancer? Why did you waste all this money on this ridiculous sideshow because if your ego was greater than your IQ? Oh, oh but you know,
5: Joe Biden has the best – you know, IQ out of anyone. You know, just ask him. He'll turn around and say to an Idaho, Iowa caucuser, you know, you're fat, you're a liar, you're stupid. I can outbench press you. I can out do more push-ups than you. I can run faster. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm the big bully in the- oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to take Trump out behind the gymnasium and beat the crap out of him. You know, Joe Biden, whenever he's challenged, comes back with some sort of a physical threat.
2: Well well that, that shows that show well, first of all, I'm not gonna say anything demeaning to Joe Biden, although he has the worst senatorial record in four decades of public service, without one single accomplishment that manifested as success, uh, foreign policy included. But I I, I will say this, that if anyone takes exception to what I say on the left side of the uh of the street, then I would please book me on any talk show, liberal, conservative, independent, I'll even, I'll, I don't know, I'll even take Richard Branson and, and do it from orbit. But I would love to debate any hardcore liberal on any of these subjects using facts, not fiction, not, not not hearsay, but I would love to debate you on the political, historical, and realistic facts of any subject that you deem is necessary to discuss or should be content uh, point of contention in any future debate with regard to uh, following the primary. Because I've tried to do this over the past few years, and and they hang up. So if you can't keep a liberal's interest to hear facts, they're not interested in facts. They're interested in emotional outpouring, and they're reactionary they're not intelligently looking at situations. And I think that's what you have in, in in the house right now. You don't have intelligent debate. You don't even have an intelligent format. What you have is a cavalcade of people with opinions that are supposed to persuade voters of their of their, you know, profound statute of impeachment. And I it's not gonna work. There aren't enough stupid people in this country for that to happen.
5: Well Colin, I'm going to introduce you to someone right here that we have coming on the air now because he's got a great charity. He works with veterans uh, with PTSD and traumatic uh, brain injury. He's got a charity called Songs and Stories for Soldiers. And since you are such a prolific writer and you've got so many books out there, maybe you would like to have one of your books go into one of his um, what do they call those little devices that you listen to with an earbug Yeah. I am having MP3s. A, uh, MP3s, right, thank you. So, Dan Perkins, I want you to meet Colin Heaton, also a veteran. Uh, maybe he's got a book or something that he can give you to add to your songs and stories for soldiers.
3: Yeah, if you have an audio book uh, and we can figure out how to get it to me. Uh, I'll put. I have a library. I give a. I've, I've distributed 19,000 MP3 players to veterans, and the MP3 player comes with two novels and an eight-hour custom-designed sleep audio to get the soldier to REM level sleep. But in addition to that, I have a website behind it called Songs and Stories for Soldiers. Us, which has three million songs, over 100,000 audiobooks, 35,000 old-time radio shows, and. Uh, three more eight-hour custom-designed sleep audio. So I'm always looking for new content to to help the veterans.
2: Well, I tell you what, uh, I, it's probably a good thing that you're talking to me because most of my books are guaranteed to put anyone to sleep. But uh, <laughs> but two of my books, but two of my books, uh, two of my books, the German Aces Speak and the German Aces Speak Volume Two are already on audiobooks on Amazon. But uh, but yeah, since it's a charity and I and I like helping veterans' charities, of course, with General Livingston, then uh, I'm more. Than, I own the rights to all my books, and so I can do whatever I want. So with regard mm-hmm. to well, well, Annie knows the Star of Africa. I own all the rights to that, and I'd be more than willing to help convert that into uh, audio. Not that I would read it myself, because that would put somebody to sleep. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I'm willing to discuss that. I just go to my website. Sure. Annie has my information and she can send it to sure. you. And uh, yep. my contact data.
3: Yep. We'll hook up. Super. Well, love
2: yeah. Well,
5: your websites are up on the show page. I sent you the link to the show. So, Colin, yours is heatandlewisbooks.com. You can click on that, Dan. And Colin, you click on the songs and stories for <laughs> on the show page link. And that way the two of you can talk and I don't have to get in the middle and mess things up on YouTube.
4: <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's fine. I'm standing by. So just send me an email, and uh, we'll just collaborate from that point forward.
3: Super. Thank you.
2: Well, thank Tom, you for your he, service. Thank
5: you for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining us, and give my love to Anne Marie, and tell her I still spell Anne Marie the correct way. All <laughs> right.
2: Okay. Okay, I will do.
5: <laughs> Take care. God thank bless. you. Thank you. All right colin heaton you can find him at com. uh and welcome on to the show dan perkins and dan i told you i play this for you let me just cue it up because you also do a veteran's uh notebook type of thing and so let's play what you tip got of the your day current message for tip of the day here we go
3: this is dan perkins with your songs and stories for soldiers Veterans tip of the day. Did you know that 1 in 10 veterans in America are homeless? Studies show that the veteran population is two times more likely to become chronically homeless than other American groups. So do something about it. Here's your Veterans tip of the day. If you know a homeless veteran, speak to them about going to the nearest VA facility for help. You could offer to take them there. Also, they can call 877-4-AID-VETS. That's 877-4-AID-VETS to speak to a counselor. We here at Songs and Stories for Soldiers are helping veterans in our community with the Sanibel shoes and socks for homeless veterans. More information can be found at Songs and Stories songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us website. Contact your local VA facility to find the closest veterans homeless shelter to see how you can help. During this Christmas season, helping the homeless veteran is the greatest Christmas gift you can receive. This is Dan Perkins with your Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Veterans Tip of the Day.
5: Wow, Dan. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. You know what I found funny is that our last show, we had on a gentleman, uh, Mr. Gallagher, that is uh, National Guard, but he also was working with preventing suicide. And that same number of veterans can, or active military can call and get help if they feel that they may be suicidal, especially going into the holidays. So helping veterans at this time of the year is so poignant.
3: Yes, absolutely. That's why we uh, we did it. And and uh, there's uh, I didn't have enough space or time to throw in the latest statistic that I got from um, from the VA right now. One in ten United States veteran is homeless. One in ten.
4: Wow.
3: And I spoke to the VA two weeks ago in our. As we were getting ready to launch our Sandoval shoes for homeless veterans, they now tell us of the two and a half million women veterans in this country, eight percent are homeless.
4: Yeah, the female that's hundred
5: veteran is is higher than male homeless veteran.
3: Well, it's it's really hard to get an accurate count in either either sex, but. Homelessness is a serious problem for veterans, and uh, we have to do something about it, and we're committed to do that. And anybody, you don't have to work with us. You can work with anybody, and um, they they appreciate the help. So it's, it really is um, it's a wonderful thing, as you said, not only to do in the holidays, but we need to remember that they're homeless year-round.
5: Absolutely. And the, the other starting, startling uh, statistic that is climbing is that we know at this point 22 veterans commit suicide every day. But if you also then throw in active-duty members now committing suicide, and it's a phenomenally mm-hmm. high number, it brings up uh-huh. the number up to 33 active or veteran military person will commit suicide per day. And you add adding right. the, the – the, the problem of homelessness, how much does that help to, to drive up the number of suicides? I mean, if you're out there yeah, on the street with no place, no job, no food.
3: Yeah, the the the, the issue I have with those numbers, I, I personally believe, Annie, they are way understated, way understated. Because yeah. what what we know is that roughly, according to the VA, only about 25% of veterans – who could use the VA, do use the VA. So the, the, these numbers, I think, woefully underestimate the actual number of veteran suicides in the country. And that's not a pleasant thing to deal with, but it's a serious problem and it hasn't gone down. In fact, it's, it's creeping up again. Um, and so it's it's something that we have to be, I know there's a the president formed a task force called PREVENTS in February of this year and Songs and Stories for Soldiers was invited to um, participate in the research of trying to gather information about what's going on. So we submitted our, uh, our responses to the questions. But um, it is a, it's, a, it's a very big problem, and um, what we've done in the past has not worked. I mean, there was a time, Annie, when we got involved in this five years ago, there was a suicide hotline run by the Veterans Administration, And one of the biggest complaints about the suicide hotline is people got an answering machine. And they're thinking about killing themselves, they got an answering machine. But they finally fixed that problem.
5: Yeah, and under this president, you know, the um, metamorphosis of the VA, even though it still is slow, is occurring. And, you know, you mentioned the hotline for um, the homeless. Uh, But the Crisis Support Hotline, which is a national suicide hotline uh, for veterans and active military, is 1-800-273-8255. And I'll repeat that, 1-800-273-8255. And that's open 24-7. And if they need help, they can go to your website, songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. But there's also a great one out there with a friend of ours, Ghost hyphen 22.com uh, they do also like you helping with the veterans uh, but if they need a ride to the VA uh, if they need a couple of bucks for food or something like that they work on the direct immediate issues where you work on uh, them helping to get them better sleep to help battle the traumatic brain injury the PTSD or whatever it is they're going through Um uh-huh. all wonderful, wonderful things you got doing. You know, But I asked a question because, Dan, you are a veteran, just like my co-host, just mm-hmm. like Colin was. And yep. Colin, I wouldn't mess with because he was a Marine sniper. <laughs> so, um, is it the new mental age that we have of kids growing up today? You know, we grew up in a different time, a different mental state. We were accustomed to having a little adversity in our life we didn't need safe spaces we didn't have trigger words seeing the american flag did not fly us into a rage the fact that hillary clinton lost the election would not have sent us in tears we were able to deal with adversity and the way we're raising kids today they're not able to do that is this maybe a problem that's now affecting our military
3: well, that's a that's a really thought provoking question. Um, um, I'm, I'm immediately flashing back to my time at Fort Knox, Kentucky, in basic training, and um, being remodeled. I mean, I, I don't know if that's the right word. When you go, if you if you obviously if you've never served in the military, and you volunteer and you go into basic infantry training, which is what I did because I was not an officer. It was an infantry grunt. When you go there, um, I, don't want to, I don't want this to sound uh, terrible because uh, it was that it seemed at the time, but in hindsight it wasn't. Uh, th- they had to change you. you. You had to learn to think differently. You had to be a different person. And so, basic training was about order, discipline, structure, following orders, uh, being able to think about what you're doing if you're in a terrible situation, how you're going to get out of it. Um, So there's a lot there. There was a lot of things that I didn't learn when I was in high school, and uh, uh, that I learned in the military, that I believe matured me and gave me a much greater respect for this country and my fellow veterans who served and died, um, but I I I don't think that the mil I think this from what I gather in speaking to people, uh, especially young men coming home from Afghanistan, I see I think that the, the difference there's a there is a fundamental difference that we're not paying a lot of attention to. Um, I was fortunate that I was in, but I, I didn't have to go to Vietnam. Uh, I stayed in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and was a, a communications expert training other people to go to uh, operate radios and go to different parts of the world. But what I'm what I'm saying is that is that we had a situation where we we had a sense of community. The people we were in basic training and in individual training. Our MOS uh, occupational specialty. We had a we had a in essence a band of brothers, uh, and I think that that's still there. I mean, you I, I am amazed. I had a gentleman who was my bunkmate in, in in communication school, who I hadn't seen in 25 years, and we sat down and started talking, and it was like yesterday we were together, not 25 years. Uh, so it's different. If you've never been there, it's hard to understand. And hard to explain it, um, but I think the difference is, and I'll, I'll take Vietnam for example. Um, when a when a soldier signed up for two years, uh, and and if he were fortunate or unfortunate, depending upon your perspective, to be sent to Vietnam, he that had a single tour, and when his tour was finished, he came home, and he was mustered out. Mm-hmm. Now we have, since the beginning of the Gulf Wars, we have young men and women who are doing 6, seven, eight, 10, 12 tours of duty, 12 cycles, and instead of a year off, it's maybe 30 days or 45 days off. So we, are, we have them in combat situations 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for extended period of time, a very little short period of time, maybe 30 days or less to decompress, and they're back in combat again so I think that the reason why we have so much post-traumatic stress disorder is that the amount of trust that we're putting on these young men and women uh, is much different than what was done in previous wars. And so um, we're, we're stressing the, the men and women to a much higher degree than we ever have before. And uh the consequences of it is that the the VA says that about 35% of returning veterans come back with PTSD. And I say to people the best way to understand what happens in PTSD is go see the movie American Sniper and watch how the man changes over his five tours of duty. I mean, man comes home, he's married, he's got children, he comes home on leave, and where is the first place he goes? Not home. He goes to a bar. And he's home two or three days before he even reaches out to his family to let them know that he's there. And so we're dealing with different sets of stress that we've never dealt before with the military. And here we have a situation where we're asking these young men and women to serve multiple tours multiple times, and we don't give them a real time for R&R of any significant amount. And so that's one well, of the think, reasons why we have – go ahead. Well, I was going to say,
5: I think also another problem is, is that we don't have a clearly defined enemy. Where it was <sighs> with World War I, II, uh, Korean War, even the Vietnam War, you knew you know, this was the civilians. These were the enemies. Vietnam had started to get a little blurry. You know, Even in the Gulf uh-huh. War, it was army fighting army. You're now sending uh-huh. men and women out into cities and villages that the enemy could be the person that's right behind you, that's supposed to be uh-huh. covering your back, and it's not. Uh-huh. There's no clearly uh-huh. defined enemy, so when they do come home, uh, they're not able to deal with the civilian side of life because they don't know who's friend and who's foe.
3: Uh, I've seen that happen so many times. Um, uh, I met, um, when we started songs and stories, one of the first places I was invited to go to was the, what was then called the, the Carrick brain center, which is outside of Dallas. And they have a, uh, an organization there and, and they created a foundation specifically to treat, uh, first responders or our special operations personnel. These were the people who went in first and took the most heat. And I happened to be able to go to the center and meet with some of the veterans at their various stages. And I saw them when they first walked in the door. And I saw men who left after they went through the treatment. And when I met them, these were the most. Uh, for the first time, I met them. Uh, the the new uh, the new People coming in were um, incredibly shy, withdrawn, looking for the nearest corner to get in, to, to not get engaged at all. Um, and by the time they finished their treatment at Carrick, they were open, uh, they were uh, interesting, they were they had smiles, they knew that they were having difficulties, but they felt like they had control. And so it's 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 a situation where. Uh, we do have um, uh, an obligation to these people, and there are some people in this country, Annie, who don't think that we have an obligation to to take to treat our veterans. Um, they they got paid and they knew what they were doing and uh, let them take care of themselves. But that's a different discussion. But um, I do yeah. think that the the post-traumatic stress disorder, and and in reality, the other thing that we've talked to the VA about in the Presidential Commission is that sleep deprivation is the gateway to all the problems. If you are sleep deprived, you eventually will not make good decisions. And generally, a person who commits suicide has sleep deprivation. And uh, a person who has sleep deprivation, a person with PTSD can have sleep deprivation. And so we have to break that deprivation cycle. That's what we do with our MP3 system. We create the ability for the veteran or the active duty soldier to break the cycle that they're dealing with in terms of sleep deprivation. And it's important. Is- and we talked to, uh, in our re- our response to the presidential commission, we said that one of the things that the Veterans Administration has to do is they have to look at alternative therapies for treating sleep deprivation. I'm, I'm working with a couple of VA facilities where it's legal. Um, We're, we're bringing two pieces of technology together to help in sleep deprivation. Um, One, the technology is a a product called Fitbit. I don't know whether you've heard of them or not, but you wear it on your wrist and, and, one of the things that they do is that they measure your sleep pattern. They tell you what time you went to bed, when you went to sleep, how much REM level sleep, how much light sleep, how much deep sleep, how much time you're awake, and what periods over over the sleep cycle and so if if we look at it and I use myself as an example um before I had this Fitbit situation and the other thing I will tell you in a moment uh, I was lucky to get out of a uh, six hours of sleep I was lucky if I got 40 minutes of 25 to 40 minutes of REM level sleep and um, deep sleep refreshes the body REM sleep refreshes the mind so I decided mm-hmm. I was going to try something and in, in Florida CBD is uh, legal So I got some gummies, and I started taking them a couple times a day, Uh, virtually no THC, but just pure CBD oil in them. And my REM-level sleep went on average up to almost double. And so I, I got a little extra sleep, but the quality of sleep that I got was dramatic. So we're talking to a couple of VA facilities that are testing that to see if uh how it works. But I said to the VA in my report, this is one of the things that you've got to look at because it's a very good possibility that C B D can in fact help break the sleep cycle problem which will have an impact on suicide prevention. Man. Can
5: you email me yeah. uh, who who you're getting the C B D gummies from? Uh because sure. the last sleep study I had, I, I'm getting less than forty percent of sleep REM sleep per night and they're saying yeah you don't have uh, sleep apnea but you're only sleeping 40 percent or less per night and this might be able to help me to because sometimes there's certain days I drag myself out of bed and it's like leave me alone world just don't even call me don't Mm -hmm. bother me
3: the best place to get it is amazon.com believe it or not and amazon.com has gummies and this is what you want to buy you want to buy gummies that are 30,000 milliliters in a bottle. Any specific you brand take, you buy? Uh, yes, I'll tell you. Let me pull it out. I have it in my drawer right here. It's called um, Cannavibe, C-A-N-N-A-V-I-B-E, hemp gummies, 30,000 MGs and there's a hundred per bottle. And you start off with one twice a day and then you go to two a day and, and then you could do uh, three a day uh, and you watch what happens. And in REM level sleep, even though you're taking gummies, there are other factors that interfere with your life that can affect your REM sleep. But, but the point is that you're going to get more, Consistent, I believe, more consistent REM level sleep with gummies uh, and CBD than um, any other. Than, see the the problem, Annie. When when we were working with the Carrie Brine Center, if a veteran came in or an active duty special operations person, the first thing that they did was a drug test, not because they were concerned mm. about whether the drug whether the soldier was using illegal drugs that the protocol that he was being treated by at the VA was to pump them full of narcotics to try and get them to rest. And, the, and wow. all the studies that I've read indicates that when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with sleep deprivation, narcotics, the body rejects the, the narcotics and will not allow the body to get to REM level sleep, no matter how much narcotics you pump into the body. Because cannabis and hemp oil are not narcotics in the same, such as opioids and other things, they can get into the system and they can do more positive things. So um, try that. Start with a, one, and you'll have to find your own level. And if you've got a Fitbit, start start tracking uh, your your mm. the percent of your of your time that you're getting REM level sleep. Yes.
4: Yeah. Because my
5: husband also has problems sleeping, but I I know mine is because my pain level, it, it keeps constantly waking me up. So I'm wondering if this would also help with pain.
3: Absolutely, no question, no question. I think your co-host wanted to ask me a question.
5: Yes, Curtis, I'm I've been stepping all <laughs> over Curtis today. <laughs>
7: Curtis. No, <laughs> hey, it's good to have you on today. Thank um, you. As we know the. The nature of war has changed these days. Um, wars are much longer. And I really think that's one of the reasons why our people get burned out, because there's no exit strategy. There's no no end to it, seemingly. I mean, in the past, you know, we we fought a war. It might have taken four years, but we could see, you know, victory, you know, somewhere down the line. And this type of war that we're fighting now, which is almost a philosophical and um, religious war, there's no end to it. So these guys have no sense of when this is going to end, so they keep getting sent back over and over again. You know, right. like you said, with um, some of the, um, what was it, the American sniper, Chris Kyle, he, he did mm-hmm. like five tours. You got some people that did seven or eight, and they're just getting burned out. Um, Well,
3: is the the military trying
7: to address these long, long deployments?
3: Uh, I don't know that the military is, but I think Mr. Trump is. Um, And what I mean by that is that is that just for example, take Afghanistan. We've been in Afghanistan for thirteen years. Thirteen years. The the war to end all wars, the Second World War was 4 We're going through a lot of people to keep fighting these wars, and and Mister um, Trump is saying, why, why don't we bring these men and women home? Um, because uh, they're never going to end, and I, and I believe that. I is it Curtis? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Curtis. Yep. Curtis Curtis or C S. If you think about in the Middle East, if you think about the enemies, the principal enemies in the Middle East are Sunni and Shia. These two groups of Muslims have been fighting since the seventh century. Seventh century. On the philosophical differences of how one should be governed under Sharia law, and as a result, <clears throat> they've warred for eight hundred years. Well, we can't go in and change that and and we we think we can try and do that, but the practical reality is that we can't do that and um and so what you're saying, which I agree with. Is that we we engaged in these, and this is this is this is good, this is a great question because it's going to be a transition, hopefully, to something else we're going to talk about today, and that is that the the engagement by which we are involved in these countries are driven off of a philosophy and a need driven. That by a problem that's no longer a problem in the United States We, we have to have We have had to have since, the second, since 1942 Until 2017 The United States was dependent on foreign sources of oil To run its economy 75 years And there have been at least seven generations Of Muslims in the Middle East who have, who have fed at the trough of the American money that was put into those countries to buy their crude oil to run our economy. And so we had a, quote, national interest to make sure that the energy was open and free flowing for us and other, other democracies and republics around the world. And so when that looked like it could be interrupted when, for example, when, uh, we had the invasion of Kuwait. We had to go in and try and secure the energy, so we, we started Gulf War One. The problem is that we went in there because we needed to protect our natural national interest of energy. We no longer need their energy at all. I mean, OPEC is deciding today, I think they did decide, to cut their production by 500 million barrels a day. Now, wow. so because the, the oil demand from the rest of the world is not anywhere near the supply. Now, we, so we're, we're not only energy independent, we don't need their oil. In fact, we are shipping about 4 million barrels a day, 4 million barrels a day out of the United States to different parts of the world. So we are an energy independent nation. We're an energy exporting well, if that's true, then our national interests no longer have any desire or need to be in the Middle East, with one exception, and that is support and protection for Israel. So we're still trying to understand what it means to be as a nation that is energy independent. And we have to, we have to learn to live again with the idea that, we, that OPEC can never turn off the switch on us again because we control the switch. They don't. And so the power, we, we look at, for example, one of my areas of expertise, we look at Iran. Since the 1st of December, over 100,000 people in Iran have been murdered by the police and the government during the protests that are there every weekend. You don't hear about it, don't see it, but it's happening. The The, the people are... Angry at the government because they squandered the $150 billion that gift that they got from Obama. Right now, the unemployment rate, if you're 25 or younger, is 40%. The inflation rate is about 65%. When we when they signed the accord for the nuclear program, it was about 23,000 um, rials to the dollar. Now it's 132,000, so inflation is just rampant so the economy's going nowhere they've been the oil has been embargoed they have very little sources of revenue and they they just recently increased the price of gasoline to their to their constituents by 50%. and so we don't so what we we, we got $2.55 a gallon regular gasoline i mean it's it's because we have our own supply we don't need to worry about importing it from somebody else. But that is a fundamental change. And if we no longer have a national security interest for energy in the Middle East, why do we have our troops there? And that's the question that Donald that's Trump is good, asking. Why are they there? That's a good
5: question because I had mentioned to um, Colin before that you know there's uprisings now in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Sudan, Algeria, uh, and they all have these uprisings. And believe it or not, women are at the forefront of the uprisings.
3: I can believe that. I can believe that. So, um, so we're just looking at a situation that that we have a we have a way we've been doing things, Colin, but we 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 haven't ad- adapted to the changes in what's happened in America in terms of how. We use our resources, human, in mm-hmm. parts of the world that we, that we don't need to. And so you're right. When, when you have X number, if you've got the lowest standing army that you've had since the Second World War and you're involved, engaged in these, all these, these wars around the world, you're stretching uh, the, the resources dramatically so that you have to have men and women who do multiple tours of duty with very little time to recover.
5: You also have to look at it that this is now we have an army that is no longer subject to the draft. You know, before, you know, you had people from all walks of life being forced into the same barracks together, learning how to live and work with each other. Today it's an all-volunteer army. Uh, I'm sorry, military, I should say, not just army. It's all-volunteer. I'm wondering whether or not it would behoove us once again to go back to some form of a draft.
3: Well, there are some people who I respect who feel that we we need a draft for some of the reasons that you're talking about, but they, they also feel we need it for other reasons. For example, they think that we don't have enough people who understand what it means to be what it means to be free in America. Exactly. We don't we don't have we don't have enough people that are patriots that are proud of who we are and what we what we do and what we have accomplished. We have a lot of people who are critical of what we have done as a nation over our over our history, and so we don't we're not generating a bunch of new patriots all the time. Uh, and and the military is uh, duty honor country. I mean that's what it's about. And um, it breeds patriotism, which is not a bad thing. And um, and so, a an expanded military force, where we bring order and discipline, and teach young men and women what it means to be an American, and what how what, what things they're fighting for, if they are sent into battle. Um, so there's there are people who feel that we yes we need a draft. Not so much because we want to build a standing army, but because we want to have people who can get order and discipline and patriotism on a regular basis.
5: Okay. Well, we've got someone in on the line. Let me bring them on that wants to ask a question. This individual is from the L.A. area. You're on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick. Our guest is Dan Perkins. Um, To whom am I speaking?
1: It's Tom. How are you guys doing?
5: Tom, you have a Hi,
1: question Tom. for I guess. Yes. How you guys doing? Good. Yeah. So All right. Um, no, for sure. I think so. Just um, what well, you guys were just was were were just chatting about. It. I think it's um, an interesting topic because I think on one end, um, you know, you can definitely make the um, defense that it will be good to kind of have these almost like school systems uh, to kind of help teach 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 people. But I think in terms of like a standing military, I just think. Um, you know, the world in uh, in general is so different now, and I think you see so much of the actual um, policing of nations done by more or less like economic deals. I, I also think just the reality of uh, the actual weaponry available to countries at this point is so um... – <laughs> some people would use the word extensive i'll use the word terrifying but you know like wars can basically be ended in an instant with some of the weaponry that exists now um and then you after you kind of factor in drones and things like that i actually think i would really prefer to see and this has nothing to do with patriotism or anything like that i would actually prefer to see a drastically reduced um manpower-wise military just because, you know, the future of wars, reality is going to be uh, is going to be based mostly around hacking. It's going to be built mostly around um, economic warfare. It's going to be largely built around drone strikes and threats of weaponry. Um, You know, you certainly need you know, let's not pretend like everything is moving to the point where you don't need on the ground a military but I think you certainly need significantly less of it than you did, you know, fifty, sixty years ago. Um, so I, I'm just curious to hear what you think about that. Well,
3: All right. thanks, Tom, for the I question. Would, the, yeah, um, Go ahead. my my response would be what Colin and I were talking about is that we have we have a certain level of military, and we're taxing that that effectiveness by overtaxing them and, and, and giving them, uh, assignments to, to, to deal with situations. Uh, and, and we don't, we don't have enough resources now that you can ask the question and it's perfectly, uh, okay to ask the question. If we had less resources, can we be less engaged throughout the world? Um, I, I would say, yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, we have American troops still stationed in many parts of the world acting as policemen, and I, I think we could probably bring many of them home. Um, and I think what Donald Trump said again this week when he was at the NATO conference is that what we're dealing with here is we've got to make sure that that NATO and the, the participating in nations of NATO have an economic interest in protecting Themselves, and so while we, as we develop more vicious weapons of mass destruction, we will find less and less need for uh, military. But I, I, don't believe that we're anywhere near there yet, um, and it would be it would be a um, Pollyannish to think that we are, and and if we can get to the point where we are in no longer dependent and we don't need um to worry about dictators um and 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 what's going on in other parts of the world, uh we, we could we could possibly do a lot of interesting things that would help reduce the size of our military and in turn reduce the size of the number of men and women who are putting their lives at risk. But that's
4: well,
5: yeah. I'm not
3: saying it's not gonna happen. It's just gonna take time.
5: Well, you've, you've covered several different areas, and what people uh, are, have a misnomer over is that they assume that you've got a drone out there and you have only one person flying that drone. And depending upon what type of drone and what its purpose is, you can have anywhere from 20 to 45 people being needed to control that drone. Uh, it's an amazing number of people that need to you know, help fly that drone to complete its, its task. Um, we still mm-hmm. would need some form of boots on the ground because there's nothing like on the ground intel. You know, you can probably watch newspapers and uh, read newspapers and watch TV, but unless you have actual boots on the ground developing intel and connections, we wouldn't have a full story about. So there are still needs for boots on the ground. I bet that you know in the future I could see a downsizing. But you have a powerful point that these men and women are coming home, and they have only 30 days at home instead of in the past where they had a full year to decompress. If there were problems mm-hmm. of PTSD or traumatic brain injury, during that year, it would be noticed, treated, and helped. We don't have that mm-hmm. anymore. We're using our men and women you know, too too much, too hard. So we need we're asking – We're food. asking
3: a great deal out of them.
5: Too few, too few doing too many tasks.
3: But,
5: so until right, we I get agree. to that point where we can say yes, we're withdrawing from these different conflicts. We don't need this large a size, so that we don't overtask our men and women. You know, their mm-hmm. physical and mental health is constantly placed at risk. And I bet that we're asking them to, to do one of the hardest tasks at all. You know, to go out there, volunteer to go into a field of conflict and possibly die. Possibly lose limbs, and we're asking too much of too few.
3: Mm I agree.
5: Did we lose
7: Curtis? Curtis, you still with us? I'm still here. (laughs) I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs)
5: You're awfully quiet.
7: You know, you're awfully quiet. my, My thoughts on it is that, and I understood the gentleman's point. I think his name was Tom, yeah. about mm-hmm. decreasing the size of our military, but I think that's one of the problems now. We don't have the manpower to to you know restaff those who's who's been over there already on multiple tours
3: yeah and and you're uh, raising I a very are, 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 are an important issue because it goes to something that I said I can't earlier take
7: nobody else out there new.
3: Yeah, and so I I think one of the issues that we have here is that we we as a nation are no longer inspiring our young people to patriotism. And if we had if we had a stronger sense of national unity and purpose, I think we would get a lot more people volunteering to serve in the military. But we don't do that anymore. We take a few who are committed to the country who will go out and serve. But uh, as you said, Curtis, not enough. And I agree, there isn't enough. There aren't enough people out there that are serving so that we can have an orderly transition going from one to the other uh, when when a soldier comes home. And um, we need to do that. And um, it is an issue that we have to deal with, uh, but I I don't think – that I have a problem with people being patriotic and serving their nation. Oh no, not at all. No, you
5: know, as 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 I've always said, all politics begin at home, and it starts with our education system. You know, you've got mm-hmm. a liberal education system that doesn't teach true history. It's become so right. polluted and diluted, and then you mm-hmm. have the liberal elites who go out there and badmouth anyone that is patriotic. You have Kamala Harris running for – she was, she dropped out, thank God – running for president of the United States, turning around and bashing the military, saying that they should be all be placed before war crime tribunals. They're baby killers. They love death. They love to go out there and kill. They are destructive. They are destroying the world. And we need a war tribunal. You have someone like that saying something. And you've got kids growing up and going, well, maybe she's got a point because if she's important enough to run for president, maybe there's truth behind what she's saying when, in fact, it's complete lies. We don't have mm-hmm. our founding documents taught in schools. We have, we have parents denied school choice where they could send their child to a school that may be teaching better than the public schools they're being shoved into. And then you've got the liberal elite just putting out propaganda. Being patriotic is a dangerous thing. you know we're deplorables, we're hobbits, we're racist. we're fascists. you know, if you are a conservative, oh, you want to see everyone else die, get dangerous when the exact opposite is true,
3: yep, and they do it all the time, every day
5: and they and they get away with it. You have someone like Madonna who says, I dreamed of bombing the White House. You've got a mm-hmm. comedian out there showing uh, an effigy of Donald Trump's head all bloody with a knife in one hand. And this is acceptable behavior. Instead of saying, hey, you're going to put it out there, then you're going to be responsible for the consequences. And we're not doing it. We're not holding people responsible.
3: Well, I've I've written commentary about that, uh, Annie. I, that that there's a provision in, of under law that if you if you as an individual threaten the president, his family, the vice president, and any cabinet members, threaten their lives, that is a felony. And we have all of those people, whether it was Kathy Lee Gifford or whether it was Madonna or or um, P- Robert Nero or Peter Fonda. Uh, they were never prosecuted, and I always – I've, I've no. asked, asked the question, why not? Why haven't they been prosecuted? Uh, and I cannot find an answer from anybody.
5: No, but heaven forbid it's done by a Republican, and then the person would be up in, in handcuffs in a cocaine heartbeat. You had that poor filmmaker that made the film uh, about Muhammad. And he was blamed for Benghazi and the attack Mm -hmm. on Cairo on 9-11, the same day that Benghazi occurred. And he was sent to prison because he made that film. How dare you? You blasphemy Islam. Oh, but you can have the Madonna covered in feces or urine. But that's perfectly fine. There are no consequences for actions unless you happen to be a conservative
3: Republican and i think that, that 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 what you're pointing out is 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 more than just conservative republican what you're pointing out is that we have a society that has evolved under political correctness to no accountability for anything you do regardless of your political persuasion uh, there there is no political accountability
5: no and, and i wouldn't use the word evolve i would say
4: devolve <laughs>
3: Okay. That's fair. That's
4: fair.
5: (laughs) You know, it's funny because my sister sent me the book. I love my baby sister dearly. uh, Frederick Bastia, and I used to speak French, called The Law. And believe it or not, this book was written in 1850, the same year that the gentleman died. And it breaks down in perfect detail the difference between our conservative thinking, our love for the republic, and what the liberal society has become. And he wrote about this in 1850, and every page I turn, I go, "Ah, yep, and that's happening now, and yep, that's happening now. He talks about the plunder that the liberal society has been placing on us of not just our rights, our wealth, our labor, and then the control of our thoughts. And that's what we're seeing today.
3: Yeah, the, it's clear that the that you know when when I was I, I did nine interviews yesterday on on what's going on with the impeachment, and and I said that the one thing that's important to understand is that the left, specifically guided by the Squad, has basically told the people of the United States. If you do not subscribe to the things that we do, then you have no right to speak. They they are taking away freedom of speech from Americans who do not agree with them, meaning they are the only arbiter of what the truth is. And that's a problem because when you say only one person or one group of people can determine what is the truth, you create a anarchy situation and and that's but that's what they want they don't want to have anybody else who disagrees with them to speak about what they believe and and that's what's going on in the left today uh and i think many americans are not buying it
5: no like the finally wising up you have the democratic legislature that just came into power in virginia and the first thing they did was gun control gun confiscation laws being put on the books and the people of virginia are turning around and going wait a minute this is just one step too far and they're starting to revolt against them but this is exactly mm-hmm. everything that frederick Bastiat wrote in his book the law every single thing you just said he wrote about saying that it was a small handful of individuals who feel that they are so superior that their thoughts are what everyone else should be molded to think, that we are too stupid. We are just little lumps of mud for them to mold into their image. But yet we are never able, we are never able or allowed to rise to their position of power because they are the ones who feel they need to control us because we're just too stupid. And I think America is waking up.
3: Yeah. I I said a a number of times over the last two weeks, I said, um, we owe the the Democratic Party a debt of gratitude. And most of my conservative Mm -hmm. friends are are ready to jump on me. And I said, just (laughs) hold your horses, listen to what I have to say. (laughs) I said, from the time that Donald Trump looked like he was going to be the President of the United States, There began the concept of talking about the deep state, the bureaucracy that is in our government that allows individuals to determine, who are not elected by the people, what's going to happen in the country. But for the longest time, Annie, it has been nondescript until we had the first House Intelligence Committee panels when we, we brought in all these people from the State Department and other places who were lifelong bureaucrats, we now know what the face of the elites the deep look state? like. Mm-hmm. We know what state. the deep state – we know what they look like. We know how they think. They are absolutely outraged that Donald Trump could make a foreign policy decision without consulting them. And yet, the Constitution clearly states Constitution clearly states that the President of the United States has the only power to create foreign policy. They can have every right to disagree with his position, but as the president, he decides what it's going to be. So we got a good look at the deep state. The second Absolutely. gift, second gift from the Democrats was the House Judiciary Committee this week. We saw three quote college professors, law school professors, and we saw the face of what 's going on in our colleges and universities in the United States, their hatred for our country, for our leaders and for us, and their ability to be the elites who decide what should happen in this country so it was a It was an eye awakening moment in both. The two both committees, when we see what people did, and how the first the first panels in intelligence couldn't come up with any cons- any constructive evidence that says that the president of the United States had uh, created an impeachable offense, and even when the three people the three uh, law professors came out this week. Uh, they again didn't have any concrete evidence, and the the way in which they addressed themselves to the to the people, and their arrogance and their 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 um, self serving and their disdain for the rest of the rest of the American people became very obvious. And this is what is happening in our in a lot of people like myself and you, Annie, who have complained about what's going on in the colleges and universities in the country today. For the first time, it has a face. And it was put on national television by the Democratic Party to show how superior these three law professors were and how these bureaucrats from the State Department are smarter and no more than the President of the United States in terms of education or public policy. And so um it was a great experience. We saw what happened in the polls that the American people are not buying the idea of impeachment. Um and they're they're not buying the idea that we should uh have an impeachment and uh yet the, the Democrats uh, are are continuing down the path um and I think, Annie, that I, I've said uh, in several interviews yesterday, I think what's going on is that the Democrats are looking at Donald Trump and they're thinking I, Richard Nixon. And uh, they know well, the, that. Dan, that with, 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 i
5: got to tell you, we to. One minute left to the show, and it's going to cut us okay. off. But uh, people can find you at danperkins.guru or at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. God bless you, Dan, for all the hard work you do, and it's going to cut me off in about 10 seconds.
7: Okay. <laughs> well, Take care. Take care, Dan. <laughs> all
5: right. Thank you. Bye. All right.
7: We'll have you back. Amen.
5: Oh, man. Talk about all the way down to the wire. Oh, man. Uh, so, Curtis, uh, we'll be back here on next Friday. And I think I actually cut you off, Curtis. I want to thank everyone that joined us over in the chat room, over on Facebook, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, everything. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern And I say until then, good night and God bless.